That's primarily, and his, usually that's what he is attributed to. He actually was born outside of Damascus and he moved to Damascus when he was quite young. I think he was something like six or seven years old, something like that, when he moved to Damascus. But he's primarily known for being from Damascus, Damascus. And there's a lot to say about how he studied and where he learned from and stuff like that. But primarily, we just want to be able to put him into context. Is that he is from the students of the likes of Al-Mizzi and Ibn Taymiyyah. And around that kind of time. Around that kind of time. He has a number of famous, uh, uh, a number of famous uh, shiukh, uh, but certainly he spent a long time with Al-Hafiz Jamal al-Din al-Mizzi. And likewise, uh, he read a number of, and he read a number of texts to uh, Ibn Taymiyyah. So you have an idea of the kind of generation that he exists within. And also you should be aware that like we said with regard to the other Sa'di as well, that with regard to Ibn Kathir, his aqidah was the aqidah of Ahl sunnah And so he generally, even though he quoted from some of the books of those people who wrote in tafsir who were not from the from the Aqidah of Ahl Sunnah, he may quote something from them. He himself, his Aqidah was, was correct. And that's important because that tells you that you're not going to go into his book and open it up and find something, you know, some crazy statement from the Mu'tazila or some crazy statement from the Mutakallimeen that is going to, you know, lead you astray. Generally, the book is written upon the methodology of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, which is important. What we need to study, which is important, uh, is his methodology in tafsir. And I'm just going to summarize it in a few basic points. Number one, he is known for his simple use of language and short sentences. So you're not going to find Ibn Kathir, you know, like going up to like 10 pages in a paragraph talking about the sabab of nuzul of a particular ayah you know it's like you're not gonna like go into that much detail it's still relatively short and and to the point you know he's known for being to the point and that his language is easy to understand generally he mentions riwayat narrations or hadith with the senate with the, with the chain of narration, generally. Now that doesn't mean from him to the Prophet but he mentions it from a famous book of hadith to the Prophet For example, he will say, Al-Imam Ahmad narrated in his musnad from so-and-so, from so-and-so, from so-and-so, from so-and-so, from so-and-so, that the Prophet said. This is important because he gives you the Sanad. And this is important for many, many reasons. Number one, it gives you confidence in what is being narrated to you. 
Number two, it allows you to study the chain, maybe not ourselves to study the chain, but it allows the scholars yani, to study the chain of narration and to give you information about whether the hadith is authentic or not. Whereas if he had just said, the Prophet ﷺ said this, and Umar said this, and Mujahid said this, then it would be difficult for us to establish whether they really said it or not. It would require a lot of work. But he's taken that work out from your, you know, he's given you a gift that you don't need to do all of that work. He's given you the chain of narration in front of you. So if you are knowledgeable about the science of hadith and the different people involved in it, then it's easy for you to be able to open the book and to be able to understand which narration is authentic and which one isn't. If you remember, Shaykh Islam Taymiyyah mentioned that one of the major differences in tafsir comes from narrations, i.e. weak narrations versus strong narrations. Therefore, Ibn Kathir has put the Sanad in there for you to be able to study which narration is strong and which narration is weak. And for us, really what we need for that is a good muhaqqiq, a good uh, checking or a good commentary. So the, the, the copy of tafsir uh, that I have, uh, of tafsir ibn Kathir, I think the one that I have is uh, from Awlad al-Shaykh, the, the print of Awlad al-Shaykh. It has a good tahqiq in it. It has a good commentary where the, the commentator on the tafsir, he says, this hadith is hasan, this hadith is sahih, this hadith is da'if. So it, it helps you in that regard. He prefers tafsir of the Qur'an with the Qur'an. And he gives preference to tafsir of the Qur'an with the Qur'an. However, he's not known for it. And this is something like you have to distinguish here. Tafsir ibn Kathir is not considered to be a book of tafsir al-Qur'an bil-Qur'an. An example of that would be, for example, Adwa al-Bayan by Sheikh Muhammad Amin al-Shanqiti, rahimahullah ta'ala. Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shanqiti has a book called Tawa al-Bayan. This book is purely and solely tafsir of the Qur'an with the Qur'an. And it's a book that is intended to be tafsir of the Qur'an with the Qur'an. As for tafsir ibn Kathir, it's considered to be an example of a tafsir bin riwayah, meaning tafsir by narrations. However, wherever Ibn Kathir can quote from the Qur'an, he will. If he doesn't find a tafsir from the Qur'an, then he will use a tafsir from the sunnah of the Prophet And if he doesn't find that, then from the Sahaba, and he also mentions the opinions of the tabi'een, even to the point that he often or will sometimes mention that the opinion of Imam al-Tabari. And he will rely upon the opinion also of Imam al-Tabari, even though Imam al-Tabari is, you know, from that generation of, you know, 300 years after the hijrah, that kind of time that he, you know, that he passed away. So it's that, like, even though he's not from that generation, but he still, he will go as far as quoting from Imam al-Tabari. But generally he will give preference to tafsir of the Qur'an with the Qur'an and then tafsir of the Qur'an with the Sunnah and then tafsir of the Qur'an with the opinion of the Sahaba 
and then tafsir of the Quran with the opinion of the Tabi'een. And if he doesn't find that, he would go as far to quote from the likes of Al-Imam Al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala. Uh, I'll quote you what he said. Uh, and I'll just translate it as I'm going. He said, indeed, the most authentic way of tafsir is to do the tafsir of the Quran with the Quran. For whatever is mentioned in a general sense in one place is mentioned in detail in another. And he's saying that even if the Quran is general in one place, in some other part of the Quran, it will mention what is, it will mention the detail for that general, for that general statement. If this is not possible, then you must take the sunnah because the sunnah explains the Quran and clarifies it. And at this point, if we do not find tafsir from the Quran nor from the sunnah, we go back to the opinion of the companions. For indeed, they are the most knowledgeable of this because of what they witnessed of the Quran and the circumstances that were unique to them. And because of what they had of complete understanding and correct knowledge and righteous action, especially their scholars and their major yani, shuyukh from the Sahaba, such as the Khulafa al-Rashidin, al-A'immat al-Mahdiyin, and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu This is from the statement of Ibn Kathir. So what he's saying to you is the best way of tafsir is tafsir of the Quran with the Quran. And then tafsir of the Quran with the Sunnah. And if we don't find Quran or Sunnah, what did Ibn Taymiyyah consider those to be? Ibn Taymiyyah calls those, and they are nusus, and you have like a text. If you don't find that, then go to the Sahaba because they were the most knowledgeable people of the tafsir of the Quran, especially the major companions, the likes of the Khulafa al-Rashidin, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, and, and Ibn Abbas, and so on and so forth. With regard to narrating from the children of Israel, he himself says, Ibn Kathir, he says, these ahadith al-Israeliyyah, these Israeliyat, these narrations from the children of Israel are mentioned for the purpose of istishhad. And he was just giving them as a, you know, by way of, of, of sort of just, just to mention them. We're not... We're not using them as a dalil. He said, we're giving them for the point of just as a, you know, just to mention them for, for a benefit. We do not rely upon them. And they are in three categories. Number one, what we know the truth of, for the, and this is true, yani what we know the truth of from the Quran and the Sunnah. What we know the falsehood of, and this is false. And that which is not mentioned not from this group nor from that group we do not believe in it nor do we deny it and it is permissible to relate it because of what has been previously said i.e. the statement of the Prophet and you narrate from the children of Israel there is no harm in it so it's permissible to narrate it but we don't approve of it nor do we deny it Then he said, and this is what we'll finish with, he said, if we do not find tafsir from the Qur'an, nor from the sunnah, nor do we find any tafsir from the sahaba, then we turn to the opinions of the tabi'een, especially their major scholars. 
like Mujahid ibn Jabr because he was an ayah in, in tafsir and he was like a miracle in, the, in, in tafsir. He was an ayah in tafsir. And for this reason, Sufyan al-Thawri used to say, if tafsir comes to you from Mujahid, then this is enough for you. And Sa'id ibn Jubair and Ikrimah and so on and so forth. Uh, and he also explained, and Ibn Kathir also explained, that tafsir of the Qur'an by nothing more than your personal opinion is haram. Any tafsir of the Qur'an by nothing more than your personal opinion is haram. So you will not find the personal opinion of Ibn Kathir in his tafsir. You'll find tarjih, he will say, I prefer this one over this one. But you will not find him saying, I sat one day and I just thought the tafsir of the ayah is this. And the tafsir will be based upon the Qur'an and the sunnah. And if it's not found, the sahaba. And if it's not found, then the tabi'een. To the point where the, 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 like the minimum, the lowest that he will go is to al-imam al-tabari. That, like you know, that is like the lowest that he will go. After that, he will not generally, Ibn Kathir will not quote uh, from the tafsir uh, of anyone else after that. So this hopefully has explained to you the methodology of Ibn Kathir in his tafsir in summary. And inshallah ta'ala, the last thing that we're going to mention is that we are going to vary the different ayat. We're not going to focus on finishing a surah. It doesn't matter to me too much. What we are going to do is take some ayat that are makkiyah or some surahs that are makkiyah and some that are madaniyah. Because the madani surahs are going to be, there's more fiqh, there's more halal and haram in it. There's more maybe, you know, like ikhtilaf in it. The makkiya is more likely to be relating to tawheed and aqeedah and, you know, worshipping Allah alone and refuting the mushrikeen. So this is a little bit easier. I mean, there's less ikhtilaf in it. So we're going to also look at those things. Because what we want to do in this next three weeks after this is literally to summarize everything we've done now since the, the last, like, whatever, six weeks or whatever, however long, five, six weeks we've been doing it. We're going to go through Ulum al-Qur'an within Tafsir, Usul al-Tafsir within Tafsir, and then comparative Tafsir between the difference between Ibn Kathir and Al-Sa'di and so on. So that's the plan inshallah ta'ala. And we've finished the time now. We don't have any more time. We have to stop now. Uh, do you have an announcement to make? Okay, apparently there's an announcement. And then Sahih International. But Sahih International will not benefit us a lot here in, in, in Tafsir. Okay. So we have a nice little thing to finish off with. Uh, one of the brothers came to take, uh, to take Shahada to become Muslim. Uh, so the brothers at Kalima have already explained. I mean, my methodology with regard to people who come to me to become Muslim we don't, uh, you know, subhanAllah, we don't just tell them, you know, come here and say the shahada. We explain Islam to them. We help them to understand what it is that they're saying. So the guys at Kalima have already done that. So the brother just wants to, and he just to say his shahada and he, uh, in front of you guys, inshallah. So what we normally do, inshallah, if you come here, then because we only have this one microphone, inshallah. So what we'll do is I'll say it for you word for word and you say it after me. Okay. okay? All right. Ashhadu. Ashhadu. An la, an la 
ilaha ilaha illallah wa ashhadu ashhadu anna anna muhammadan muhammadan rasulullah rasulullah that's all it takes so the brother mashallah became uh, became muslim now he came to kalima the guys explained to him about islam and he made his shahada now for everyone so inshallah the brothers can uh, can greet him after the salah after after we finish the lecture inshallah ta'ala uh, but it's very very nice it's very nice to see you bro very nice for you to uh, you know like uh, to come here and to share your islam with everyone jazakallahu khairan uh, and again you know like it's a very good it's a very good thing that everybody takes from that the importance of learning you know all of the people here they came today to learn about islam and that's what everyone has to do from the moment you become muslim and take your shahada now after that the journey is all about learning your religion and learning about islam so inshallah we'll finish there jazakumullah khairan So inshallah ta'ala, we are going to move on from the introduction that we made in the last class. And before that, I do apologize for being a little bit late today. Uh, we are going to inshallah ta'ala uh, continue on from what we did in the, in the last class inshallah. And that is that we will begin today the tafsir that we're going to study bi-idhnillah ta'ala now. I just had a couple of points before we begin with this tafsir. The first one was, uh, I hope that you are all watching the videos that are released uh, on a weekly basis. So on a weekly basis, we release a video and we provide a link to some books and so on. Uh, a lot of people say that, for example, they might not catch the emails or something like that, but you can still access those videos directly via the kalima website that is kalima.org forward slash module one on there you can find the links to uh, there's a video that was released every week uh, some of the brothers had a, had a question regarding and i answered this in the video but i just want to emphasize it again today regarding the way that we approach the course now we only have two hours in fact less than two hours by the time we you know, get started and everything gets going. We, we have a, you can say a couple of hours of teaching every week. In that two hours every week of 12 weeks, that's 24 hours worth of teaching time. In fact, it's probably less than that with exams and what have you. It's not possible to cover the content of all of the books from beginning to end. Now I had two choices when it came to this course. I could have said to you guys that we will cover the book from beginning to end, but we will only do two books in the year. We will cover the book from the first word until the last word, nice and, you know, slowly. 
but we'll only cover two books in the whole year. In one module, we'll cover one book. In one module, we'll cover another book. And in the whole 12 weeks in Hilya Talib al-Ilm, for example. Even then, there are some things we wouldn't finish. So Tafsir al-Sa'di, if we were to do it word by word from beginning of the book to the end of the book, would take us the better part of probably three or four years to finish. So the reality is that we can't possibly cover all of the material. So my choice was to select parts of various books to teach you. Instead of teaching you the whole book, to select parts. Now I've tried to make a judgment as to which parts are important for you to do with the teacher and which parts you can read at home. So we kind of cover the methodology of the book and give you a key with which you can then go back to the book and read it in your own time. That is the way that I suggest we approach the course. Now I'm not suggesting it's the best way. Uh, in fact, whether it's the best way or not, that is a, something that I'm yet to decide, to be honest with you. Um, I've seen people do it different ways. Our teachers who taught me, uh, they did it in different ways. Some of them said, we will finish the whole book no matter what, it's more valuable to finish a whole book from beginning to end than it is for you to take pieces. And some people said, no, it's better that you cover all of the topics of Islam and just let you understand how the book works and then be able to approach the book in your own time, knowing that you have a teacher that you can come and ask when you don't understand something. Now, I'm not going to promise you that the way I've chosen is the best. And in fact, I'm quite willing to change it in module two. If I think that it didn't work, then in module two, we will do it a different way. I have no issue with that. I mean, I'm quite willing to change, the, to change the way that we are doing it. But right now in module one, the idea is we have now the topic of tafsir. We have three weeks left. In those three weeks, bearing in mind that there's going to be an exam, so that's really two and a half weeks. In that two and a half weeks, we have to cover enough of tafsir that you guys feel confident in approaching tafsir at the level you are at right now. Now, I think we can do that with the tafsir of two surahs, or not even two surahs, but one surah and a part of one surah. So we're going to do the tafsir of Surah Al-Fatiha, and we're going to do the tafsir of a part of Surah Al-Ma'idah, now the reason I chose Surah Al-Fatiha and Surah Al-Ma'idah is for a number of reasons. Number one, Surah Al-Fatiha is Ummul Quran. It summarizes the entire meaning of the Quran in it. And that's why it's called Ummul Quran because the Umm of something is that which everything returns to it. And it's the origin to which everything returns. You know, so if you have an object, something, and it returns to an origin, it has a, a source, then you call that source Al-Umm, the mother. And this word Umm in Arabic is more general, it's more uh, comprehensive than English. In English, we only use mother for, you know, usually we use mother for the person who gave birth to you. And sometimes you might say like the mother of all evil, like in that sense. But the word Umm in Arabic is more general. The origin and the source of something is called the Umm. And so because all of the meanings in the Qur'an are summarized within Surah Al-Fatiha, so it's called Umm Al-Qur'an. So to a certain extent, if you understand Surah Al-Fatiha, you've given yourself a good head start in understanding the whole of the Qur'an. 
Because the Quran doesn't go outside of the meanings found within Surah Al-Fatiha in general, and in a comprehensive sense, uh, the Quran doesn't go outside of those essential messages that are given to us in Surah Al-Fatiha. And the rest of the Quran is a detailed explanation of the meanings within this Surah. So that's the first reason for Surah Al-Fatiha. Surah Al-Fatiha is Makkiya. It's a Surah that was revealed in Makkah. And the reason we wanted to deal with a surah which is revealed in Makkah is the surahs revealed in Makkah tend to be surahs that focus upon aqidah in general. And that shows you the falsehood and the, uh, you know, the, the error of the one who says that there is no aqidah in the Quran. All of the surahs that were revealed in Makkah, all of them have nothing but aqidah in them. And there are very few rules and regulations and halal and haram in the surahs that were revealed in Makkah. Very few. The surahs revealed in Makkah are about purifying your belief, about recognizing who Allah is, about worshipping Allah alone. These are the, that, that is the essence of the message of the surahs that were revealed in Makkah. And you know that the salah was not revealed upon and the Muslims, and the Muslims had virtually nothing in the means of halal and haram for certainly the first probably 10 years, 7 years, 8 years, the Muslims had very little in the way of halal and haram that was revealed to them. The vast majority was revealed about worshipping Allah and avoiding everything which is worshipped besides Him. And this is a theme you see, alhamdulillah, again and again in the surahs that were revealed in Makkah. As for the surahs that were revealed in Medina, and we're going to take Surah Al-Ma'idah as an example, they are full of ahkam, they're full of the halal and the haram. Do this and don't do this. This is halal and this is haram. You can eat this and you can't eat this. You can drink this, but you can't drink this. You can do this, but you can't do this. This is a marriage that is allowed. This is a marriage that is not allowed. The hijab, the zakah, all of them were revealed in Medina. Because we begin by purifying a person's belief, a person's worship of Allah, knowing Allah and worshipping Him. This is what the Prophet ﷺ began with. For at least the first eight, maybe ten years of his prophethood were spent teaching the people the basics of Iman, the basics of belief, the basics of Tawheed. And so it makes sense if you want to give people a, an introduction to Tafsir, that you should take a piece of this and a piece of this. Because if we did the Tafsir of the, the surahs that are Makkiya, or the surahs that are very short, for example, the surahs that were revealed at the end of the Quran, then in general, we're going to get a lot about Aqidah and Tawheed and belief and Iman, but we're not going to get a lot about dealing with the rulings in the Qur'an and the halal and the haram. And the ikhtilaf, the disagreement in the rulings is much, much more than the disagreement in the issues of Tawheed. In fact, in Aqidah, the companions virtually did not disagree in anything except a handful of very small issues. For example, did the Prophet ﷺ see Allah or not? What is the meaning of the saq? the shin in the Qur'an. And the, the, there are like a handful, you can probably count them on one hand, 
of issues of Iman in which the companions had any disagreement at all. However, in the issues of fiqh, the disagreement becomes more. So it makes sense to start with a surah which is Makkiyya and which comprehensively covers the meanings of the Makkan surahs in the Quran. And this makes sense to cover Surah Al-Fatiha. Also, from the point of view of importance, Surah Al-Fatiha is more important than any of the other surahs in the Quran. And that's clear for a number of reasons. First of all, that we read it as an obligation in every raka'ah, in every prayer that we pray. We read Surah Al-Fatiha. And the Prophet ﷺ said, لا صلاة لمن لم يقرأ بفاتحة الكتاب there is no prayer for the one who does not read Surah Al-Fatiha. So it's very important in that way. Also, it is the greatest surah in the Quran. What is the greatest ayah in the Quran? The greatest ayah in the Quran is Ayatul Kursi. Allahu la ilaha illahu al-hayyu al-qayyum. This is the greatest ayah. Ayah number 255 from Surah Al-Baqarah. And just to give you an idea of how significant this ayah is i have an explanation of this ayah by our sheikh abdul razak al-abbad the sheikh hafizahullah he explained the ayah in and i'm not going to give the exact number because i can't recall but over 20 maybe nearly 30 one hour sittings to explain ayatul kursi only the reality is the ayah contains a huge amount of of benefit and likewise, Surah Al-Fatiha, we could explain in 28 sittings. Yani it's huge. But we just as a summary of a tafsir of Surah Al-Fatiha today, from tafsir al-Sa'di, first of all, and then we will also move on after tafsir al-Sa'di to Ibn Kathir. Because again, the contrast between the two. Al-Sa'di is going to be much more summarized and more sort of to the point. And Ibn Kathir is going to give you a lot more information and knowledge, but in a lot more sort of scattered way lot more wide sort of range of information so you learn how to deal with the two books to the best of my knowledge Surah Al-Fatiha in Tafsir Al-Sa'di is part of the Dar Salam print which is just the last two juz of the of the Quran and Surah Al-Fatiha to the best of my knowledge so I believe that also another reason why I chose Surah Al-Fatiha is because it's easier the Tafsir Al-Sa'di that is translated in the US which is the whole of the tafsir, is harder for you to get. And it's quite expensive, the book. I think they're charging something like $40 a volume. Or, so it's quite expensive to buy the book. But this small one from Dar es Salaam, to the best of my knowledge, it contains Surah Al-Fatiha. So that will also make it easier for people to access. So inshallah, we're going to sort of cover a bit of this and a bit of that. But today, inshallah, ta'ala, the aim is to cover the tafsir of Surah Al-Fatiha from the tafsir of al-imam al-sa'di rahimahullah ta'ala and as we said al-imam al-sa'di is relatively contemporary as a scholar that means that he lived not in the generation of our teachers but the generation of our teachers teachers or one above that so you're talking about uh, as we said I think he died in 1370 something or something like that rahimahullah ta'ala so it's relatively contemporary and that makes it relatively easy to begin with and as I've said our Sheikh Abdul Razak al-Badr 
Hafizahullah, he recommended that this is the tafsir that you should teach to the people when you first teach them tafsir because of all of the benefits that it contains. And we talked about the differences and the, the, the manhaj of Ibn Kathir in his tafsir as well last time. So inshallah ta'ala we'll begin with Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is the first part of the Quran which the scholars mention in their books of tafsir. And the scholars differed as to whether Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is an ayah from Surah Al Fatiha or not. They agreed that Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is an ayah from the Quran without any doubt, without any disagreement among them. Because of the ayah innahu min Sulaiman wa innahu Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. So there is no doubt that Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is part of an ayah in the Quran. But they differed over Surah Al Fatiha. Is Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim an ayah from Surah Al Fatiha or not? And I think we will cover this more in the, when we read Ibn Kathir bi'idhnillahi ta'ala. In the Mus'haf that we have, the, the, the Mus'haf that is from the riwayah of Hafs and Asim, that the, the Mus'haf that we usually have in the masjid, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is an ayah from Surah Al Fatiha. And therefore, the last part of Surah Al Fatiha, Sirat al Ladina and Amta alayhim ghayr al Magdubi alayhim waladdalin is one ayah because there are seven ayat and the scholars are unanimous in the fact that Surah Al-Fatiha is seven ayat so if we count Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim then it is Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim one Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen two Ar-Rahmanir Rahim three Maliki Yawmiddin four Iyaka Na'budu wa Iyaka Nasta'een five Ihdina Sirat Al-Mustaqeem six Seven. If we don't count Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim as an ayah, then we count it as an introduction to the surah, as a as a, a word or a phrase or a sentence which introduces every surah in the Quran, but one. Then it introduces every uh, uh, surah in the Quran except for Surah Al-Bara'a and Surah Al-Tawbah. So, if it isn't an ayah from the Quran, or an ayah from, if it isn't an ayah from Surah Al-Fatiha, then what is, what, how do we break it into seven ayat? Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen is one. Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, two. Maliki Yawmiddin, three. Iyaka Na'budu wa Iyaka Nasta'een, four. Ihdina Sirat Al-Mustaqeem, five. Sirat al-Ladina an'amta alayhim Six Sirat al-Ladina an'amta alayhim Six Ghayr al-Maghdubi alayhim Waladdalin Seven So how does Imam al-Sa'di begin? I'm going to translate from the Arabic He says about Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim I begin with every name of Allah the Exalted. Because the word ism, the word ism in Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim is a 
and this is a little bit of grammar. He says it's mufradun mudaf. So it comes as the name of Allah. And it comes as in the name of Allah. But because the, gra the way it's mentioned in Arabic, the, gr the grammar of the Arabic, and I won't go too much into the grammar of the Arabic, but the grammar of the Arabic indicates that it covers all of the names of Allah, all of the beautiful names of Allah. So when you say Bismillah, when you say Bismillah, this means that I begin with all of the names of Allah and not just that I begin with the name Allah but I begin with all of the names of Allah and for those of you who know Arabic then it is Mufradun Mudaf and Al-Mufrad Al-Mudaf Ya'um Jami' Al-Asma so for those of you who understand the grammar of Arabic then you'll understand why but for us who don't understand the grammar of Arabic it's enough for us to understand that Bismillah covers all of the names of Allah. All of the names of Allah. And in all, with all of the names of Allah. Uh, and the Ba here is Ba'ul Isti'ana. It's the Ba which means Asta'inu. I seek your help. Like Iyaka Na'budu wa Iyaka Nasta'in. This Ba, when you say Bismillah, it means, Asta'inu, I seek your help, O Allah. I seek your help, O Allah, with all of your names. Then Imam Sa'di, he said, Allah, al-ma'bud. He is the one who is worshipped. And he, Allah, the meaning of the name Allah is that Allah is the one who is worshipped. Allah is the one who is worshipped. The one who deserves all worship to be for him alone. Because of the perfect attributes of divinity that he is described with. And this is a very, very beautiful and this is a very, very comprehensive and yet summarized meaning of the word Allah. That the word of Allah is Al-Mahluh Al-Ma'bud. The one who is worshipped, the one who devotion is shown to him. Why is devotion shown to Allah? Why is Allah deserving of devotion and worship and nothing else is deserving of devotion and worship? Because of the attributes of divinity which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is described with. If someone were to ask you the question, why is Allah deserving of worship and why are my idols not deserving of worship? Why is Allah deserving of worship and why is Jesus, peace be upon him, Isa salam, not deserving of worship? Because of the attributes of divinity which Allah Azza wa Jal is described with. Because Allah is Ar-Rabb, Al-Malik. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Ar-Razzaq. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Quddus, As-Salam. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who gives and the one who takes. All of these are every single attribute of Allah is a reason why we worship Him instead of anyone and anything else. وَهِيَ الصِّفَاتُ And these attributes, they are the attributes of perfection. These attributes, they are the attributes of perfection. And we learned in our principles, 
take this back to the principles. Do you remember we learned about the principles of the sifat of Allah? That all of the sifat of Allah are sifatu kamal. They are all attributes of perfection. There is no imperfection in any single attribute in any way at all. That was one of the rules that we learned with regard to the names and attributes of Allah. So this is all about linking your knowledge now. It's about what you've learned, you try to make links. And if Allah makes it easy, even in the exam, I want to you know, highlight this inshallah. This issue of links between areas that you've learned, between the first subject and the second subject. Here now we learned a principle, all of the characteristics and attributes of Allah are attributes of perfection. There is no imperfection in them in any way. And that is what Imam Sa'di said is the meaning of Allah. Allah is the one whose attributes are perfect and, it ha and has no imperfection in any of his attributes. And that's why he is the one who is deserving of all worship. So you can see it's very summarized, but it's also very beneficial. It's not summarized like just Allah, the Lord. And he will say Allah and then he'll give you three lines, three small lines. Probably if you put it on one A4 page, it would be just one line. But that one line gives you the proper understanding of Tawheed, the proper understanding of the name Allah, a benefit that you can take. So that's how a Tafsir al-Sa'di is. When you read it, you feel like, wow, I really benefited from this. You didn't just learn the translation of the words and you felt like you came away with something. Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. He says two names which evidence or which are evidence that Allah Ta'ala is the Rahmatil Wasi'ah. That Allah has comprehensive, expansive mercy, huge mercy, Azima. He said, Dalani ala annahu ta'ala the Rahmatil Wasi'atil Azima. That Allah is the one who has expansive and huge, great mercy, which has encompassed every single thing and which has or which is applied to every single living thing. So he first of all talks about the general mercy of Allah, that these two names indicate that Allah has a huge mercy, which is vast and expansive, and which has surrounded every living thing. And Allah has written this mercy specifically for the muttaqeen, for those people who are fearful of Allah or pious of Allah, those who follow His prophets and messengers. So these, they have absolute mercy. They have every part of Allah's mercy. And as for others, they only have a portion of it. So what did Imam al-Sa'di say here regarding the mercy of Allah. He mentioned two types of mercy. He said, first of all, these two names indicate to us that Allah's mercy is huge and vast and that it covers every living thing, Muslim, Kafir, animal, human being. Everything is within the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. <coughs> and if you want to understand the mercy that Allah has given to the non-Muslims, 
the fact that Allah has not taken their lives and put them into Jahannam from the first moment that they said the words of kufr is enough of a mercy to see the mercy of Allah but that mercy that they will receive is only a nasib it's only a piece a portion of Allah's mercy as for the absolute mercy of Allah this will be for the muttaqin the people of taqwa they are the people who will get the comprehensive mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because they will get the mercy of Allah in this dunya the general mercy they will get the specific mercy of iman in this dunya and then they will get the mercy of jannah and all of those things that come with it so they will they will be the ones who get the comprehensive mercy as opposed to the uh, general mercy that encompasses every living thing before moving on to the next paragraph that imam al-sa'di deals with i want to just jump into the uh, tafsir of sheikh muthaymin briefly Al-Imam Al-Sa'di takes a position with regard to Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim that Ar-Rahman refers to the general mercy and Ar-Rahim refers to the specific mercy. And this is, this is one of the opinions of Ahl-Sunnah regarding the difference between Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim. That Ar-Rahman refers to the generic mercy and Ar-Rahim refers to the specific mercy. Shaykh uh, Muthaymeen, Rahimullah Ta'ala, he mentioned another way of understanding the difference between Ar Rahman and Ar Rahim. And to me, his is more correct. And that is to say that Ar Rahman refers to the mercy of Allah, and Ar Rahim refers to bestowing that mercy upon whoever he wants why is this more correct first of all let's understand the meaning of this ar-rahman refers to the mercy itself in other words allah is the most merciful and ar-rahim refers to the application of that mercy the giving of that mercy to whoever he wants because allah gives mercy to whoever he wants sometimes he gives a lot sometimes he gives a piece but he bestows that mercy. That mercy is conveyed and bestowed upon his creation. The reason why this is more correct is for two reasons. First of all, the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal that Allah is in Allah. Indeed, Allah is bin nas to all people, to all mankind. Ra'ufun. Rahim, that Allah is to all mankind Rahim. Now, this has a problem with the tafsir that was given by Imam Sa'di. Because what you understand, even though he was not explicit in saying it, what you understand from the tafsir of Imam Sa'di is that Ar Rahim is the mercy which is specific to the believers. Even though he didn't, he didn't say that to be fair to him, he didn't say that explicitly. But that's the common, that's the common tafsir of ar-rahman ar-rahim that ar-rahman is the general mercy and ar-rahim is the specific mercy 
But Allah used the word Rahim to refer to his general mercy in Surah Al-Baqarah. That Allah is towards all people, Ra'ufun, Rahim. So now we have a problem because Allah refers to his mercy with Rahim as being for all mankind. Then if we look at the words themselves, Rahim, the pattern in Arabic grammar is fa'il. And this is more appropriate to explain it as the action of conveying mercy. And Ar-Rahman on the pattern fa'alan is more appropriate to describe as the general sifa, the general attribute of mercy that belongs to Allah Azza wa so I believe that the stronger translation, and if you look in Muhsin Khan, he goes with the translation of As-Sa'di. Uh, I believe, yani, rahimullah ta'ala. Uh, and likewise, Sahih International also go with this. But the more correct, and Allah knows best, the more correct, I think Sahih International go with the entirely merciful, the especially merciful. And this is the tafsir in accordance with Al-Imam Al-Sa'di. However, the more correct would be to say the most merciful, the bestower of mercy. Because Rahman refers to the sifa, the fact that Allah has infinite mercy. And Rahim refers to the application of that attribute to whoever Allah wills. A portion of it to the disbelievers in this world a portion of it to the believers in this world and the greatest portion of it for the believers Yawm Al-Qiyamah. So here is an example of a difference. And again, if we come to Ibn Kathir, we're likely to get even more uh, differences among the difference of the scholars between Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim. But the famous tafsir is that Ar-Rahman is general and Ar-Rahim is specific. But the better and the one that is more in accordance with the remaining ayat of the Qur'an and with the Arabic language is that Ar-Rahman refers to the fact that Allah is the most merciful and Ar-Rahim refers to the application of that mercy to whomsoever he wills, Azza wa Jal. Then Imam Al-Sa'di, he said, you should know that from the principles which are agreed upon among the Salaf of this Ummah and their scholars or their leaders, is that we have Iman in the names of Allah and His attributes and the rulings which come from those attributes. So we believe as an example that He is Rahmanun Rahim, that He is the most merciful, the bestower of mercy, the one who has the attribute of mercy which He has been described with, which relates to the one that mercy is given to. So all blessings are an effect or, an, or all blessings are a, an ether. They are the result of his mercy. And this, in this way, we believe in all of the names. We say about Al-Alim, the all-knowledgeable, the one who knows everything. We say that he is the most knowledgeable, the one who has knowledge by which he knows every single thing. The one who is Al-Qadir, the all-powerful or the all-able, who is able to do every single thing. What did Imam Sa'di do here? He summarized for you the aqidah of Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah with regard to the Asma'u Sifat. 
as a refutation of the Ashaira and the Maturidiyya and the Mutakallimeen and all those who came before them and after them. So look at you're getting Tawheed, Aqeedah, a summary of the proper Aqeedah in the first beginning of Surah Al-Fatiha before he even started Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, be warned that the Aqeedah of Ahl Sunnah is to believe in the names and attributes of Allah as they come. To affirm that with every name there is an attribute that Allah is described with and to affirm the application of that attribute to his creation. That's a summary of Al-Qawaid Al-Muthra for you in one paragraph. He summarized for you all of the belief of Ahl Sunnah with regard to the names and the attributes. Why do you think Al-Imam Sa'di did this? Because of the fact that so many books of tafsir are written by the mutakallimin. Those people of rhetoric and philosophy who went astray with regard to the names and attributes of Allah. So Imam Sa'di is saying, before I even begin, let me warn you against deviating with regard to the belief of Ahl Sunnah in the names and attributes of Allah. Let me give you a summary of what you should believe about the names and attributes of Allah before you even begin the tafsir of the Quran. You should believe that Allah Azza wa Jal is every name, has every name and attribute that he described himself with and which the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam described him with and that we affirm the attribute within that name and that if that attribute has an application to his creation, then we affirm the action that is related to that attribute. And he gives all that to you just in the beginning, in the summary of the meaning of Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. And that shows you the value of Tafsir al-Sa'di. Because he's going to give you the correct aqidah with regard to the names and attributes of Allah. Before you even begin the Tafsir of the Qur'an, gives you a summary of what you should believe regarding the names and attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then he continues, Alhamdulillah. With Alhamdulillah. And Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. He said, Alhamdulillah is to praise Allah with his attributes of perfection and his actions which are a balance or which are, or not a balance, his actions which are, which you can say, which go between al-fadlu or al-fadli wal-adl between giving more than you deserve and being just. What did he say? Alhamd, it is athana. It is to praise Allah. It is to praise Allah. Why do we praise Allah? What do we praise Allah for? We praise Allah for his perfect attributes and actions. We praise Allah for his perfect attributes and actions. What is your dalil, O Imam Sa'di, for this? Where is your dalil to say that, we, that the praise of Allah that we do is for his sifat and for his actions? Alhamdulillahi. All praises for Allah, and then Allah immediately mentions His sifat that He is Ar Rabb, that He is Rabbul Alameen. And many of the scholars affirmed Rabbul Alameen on its own as a name for Allah from them, Shaykh Islam al Taymiyyah. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala showed you the reason why we praise him. We praise him because he is 
Rabbul Alameen. Because he is Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. Because he is Maliki Yawmiddin. That is why we praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because of the perfection of his attributes. And because of his actions. And again, Al-Imam Al-Sa'di from the beginning sets out himself as being different from the mutakallimeen. Those people who when you mention action along with Allah, they look for a spade to dig themselves a hole. Because they, don't, they cannot understand the concept that Allah has actions. That He does whenever He wants. And they you know, twist left and right to explain this and try to say His actions are all constant and they don't go up or they don't go down and so on. But perfection is to be able to do whatever you want whenever you want. That is perfection. Perfection is not to be forced to speak constantly every day and every night for every moment and every second because if you stop speaking, you will no longer be perfect. That is not the perfection. Perfection is being able to speak whenever you want to whoever you want. That is perfection. And that is what we affirm for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with regard to His actions. That He does them whenever He wants, wherever He wants. And an Imam al-Sa'di mentioned that all of the actions of Allah come within al-fadlu wal-adl. Al-fadlu wal-adl. Because somebody may say, but you know from the actions of Allah is that He misguides and He puts people into Jahannam. And how do we reconcile this with perfection? Isn't perfection to put everyone into Jannah? This is not perfection. Perfection is, as Imam al-Sa'di said, بَيْنَ الْفَضْلِ وَالْعَدْلِ Al-fadl is when you give someone more than they deserve, better than they deserve. So those of the believers that Allah enters into paradise, they are being given al-fadl, more than they deserve. Because ultimately none of us deserve paradise. None of us deserve paradise. As Allah said in Surah Al-Hujarat, فَضْلًا مِّنَ اللَّهِ وَنِعْمًا It is nothing but a grace, a fadl. We say in Arabic, fadlul الْمَاءِ Al-fadl is what is left over extra that you don't need. And it's something which is additional to the, the basic requirements. So when you make wudu and you have some water left over in the, in the bowl, this is fadlul الْمَاءِ This water is fadl. It's extra. It's a bonus. You could translate the word fadl as a bonus. Allah Azza wa Jal said about our iman that our iman is fadlan min Allah. It is a bonus from Allah, a, a gift from Allah Azza wa Jal. That He gave extra to what you deserve. Because if Allah Azza wa Jal were to treat us with what we deserved, He would hasten the punishment for every single one of us. Because none of us deserve anything more than the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. However, Allah Azza wa Jal, out of His infinite mercy and His grace and His generosity and His kindness and His love for His creation, has bestowed upon us Iman and has given us an opportunity to achieve a paradise that we do not deserve. So, this is a fadl from Allah, a grace, something which is additional to what you deserve. And then you say, someone may say, okay, but why has Allah given you the bonus and not me? And this is what Imam al-Sa'di said, بَيْنَ الْفَضْلِ وَالْعَدْلِ 
Allah Azza wa Jal, in giving out that bonus, in giving out that grace, He is infinitely just. None of us deserve to pass the exam. But He knows those people who tried to revise and work hard, and those people who did not try to revise and work hard. So those who tried to pass, even though you are guaranteed to fail, the fact that you tried and worked and strived, Allah from His infinite justice chooses to give you the grace and the addition and the benefit and the bonus to what you deserve because He knows the sincerity with which you tried to be able to achieve that. And this is the proper understanding of entering into paradise. As the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, none of you will enter paradise by your actions. They said, not even you, O Messenger of Allah. He said, not even me. And he, I even haven't done enough of my actions to, to be a you know, one-to-one -one exchange for paradise. Except that Allah encompasses me with His mercy. Yani meaning that your actions that you do in this world in of themselves are not enough to earn you Jannah. But they, they give you the mercy of Allah by which you enter into Jannah. And that is the reconciliation between the fact that Allah gives you Jannah because of your actions, but Allah doesn't give you Jannah because of your actions. How do we reconcile between those two? Your actions are, the, are that which Allah Azza wa Jal bestows His mercy on you because of. In other words, like we said, you all go to take the exam, everybody fails. But some people try really, really hard to pass. And those people, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, gives them a mercy and a grace and says, by my grace and my mercy, I will give you what you were striving for, even though in a theoretical sense, you didn't make the grade. And that's because every act of worship that you do, if you compare it, to the blessings that Allah Azza wa Jal has given you, it cannot compare. It can't compare. If you were to take the blessing of your eyesight and balance it against every single act of worship that you have done, your acts of worship would not reach the level of the blessing of the eyesight that Allah Azza wa Jal has given you. They would not reach the level of the blessing of the beating of the heart that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has given you. You haven't done enough. But because you have done those actions, Allah has promised His mercy and His paradise to those who do those actions. So the actions in of themselves will not bring you paradise, but they will bring you the mercy of Allah Azza wa Jal by which you will enter paradise. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. So again, Al-Imam Al-Sa'di tells you the difference between Al-Fadl and Al-Adl and that nothing that Allah Azza wa Jal does ever goes below justice. Yani nothing that Allah does is ever unjust. And this again, if the people understood it, they would not have a problem with Al-Qadr wal-Qadha. If you simply just went on the concept that nothing Allah does is unjust, you would never ever have a problem understanding the decree of Allah. Because ultimately what you understand or what you don't, you know that the decree of Allah is one of two things. It is either Al-Fadl or it is either Al-Adl. It is either giving you more than you deserve or giving you exactly what you deserve. And it is nothing more than that or nothing less than that. So it's never possible that Allah Azza wa Jal can be unjust. Allah either gives you what you deserve or He gives you more than you deserve.
subhanahu wa ta'ala. And when he gives you more than you deserve, he gives it out of justice. So it's not random like, you know, you see some people, they, like they want to give out money, so they just take a wad of money and they throw it in the air. And whoever catches it, catches it, and whoever doesn't, doesn't. This is not like the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah says, أَلَيْسَ اللَّهُ بِأَعْلَمَ بِالشَّاكِرِينَ Doesn't Allah know best those who will be grateful? So Allah has a bonus to give. But He knows those people who will be grateful for that bonus and those people who will not be grateful. So He chooses to give that extra gift to you because of what He knows from what is in your heart and what is in your actions. And Allah knows best. And then he said, فَلَهُ الْحَمْدُ الْكَامِلُ بِجَمِيعِ الْوُجُوهِ He has every kind of praise in every single way. And this is Imam Al-Sa'di giving you an introduction to the meaning of Al in Al-Hamd. Until now he only covered Al-Hamd. And that Al-Hamd, the Al here is like the scholars say, لِسْتِغْرَاقِ it covers every single kind of praise. Because every type of praise and every word of praise and every act of gratitude is deserving to Allah Azza wa Jal. So he is explaining to you in a very simple way that the meaning of Alhamd is that every single type of praise is belonging to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he is deserving of every type of praise. Perfect praise. Alhamdul kamil. Perfect praise in every single way. Rabbul alameen. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. So he says, Rabbul alameen. He says, Ar-Rabb. Who is Ar-Rabb? Look, Imam al-Sa'di gives a lot of importance to the names and attributes. Every time he comes to a name of Allah, he explains the meaning of that name. Because wallahi, Ikhwan, take from me that the, one of the most fundamental purposes of the Qur'an is to teach you who is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is one of the most fundamental pieces of knowledge. And this is why, wallahi, when we come to the people who gave the tafsir of the Qur'an upon ilmul kalam, upon the knowledge of rhetoric and philosophy, that you will not benefit from their tafsir except a small amount. Because they missed the greatest purpose for which the Qur'an was revealed. Completely missed it. And they gave tafsir of the Qur'an, but they missed the point of the Qur'an. One of the major, major purposes behind the revelation of the Qur'an is for you to know Allah Azza wa Jal through His names and attributes and therefore worship Him based upon your knowledge of Allah Azza wa Jal. And so the one who goes past every name of Allah, twisting the meaning and changing the meaning, or missing it out, or saying, this is from the mutashabihat, we don't know what it means, or Allahu A'lam, we don't know who is Ar-Rabb, and we don't know who is Allah, and we don't know who is Ar-Rahman, and we don't know who is Ar-Rahim. Like the Mufawwida said, a group of the, the, the philosophers and the mutakallimeen, they said that we don't know what these names mean. These names are like Alif Lam mean. We don't know anything. We don't have any idea what these words mean. Only Allah Azza wa Jal knows. And they differed among themselves. Does the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam know the meaning of them or not? Some of them said, Hatta they said the Prophet Sallallahu did not know who is Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. That these are from the Mutashabihat. Allah only knows their meanings. Nobody knows them but Allah. 
And then half of the Quran is meaningless if we said this. So Al-Imam Al-Sa'di is going to give you every time he comes to a name of Allah, he's going to explain that name to you so that you can know Allah and you can worship Allah based upon that knowledge of Allah Azza wa Jal. So he said, Ar-Rabb is Al-Murabbi. And this is beautiful. This is from the fawa'id, the benefits that I only saw in Tafsir Al-Sa'di and it may be in some of the other books of Tafsir. But I found this meaning in, in more so highlighted in Tafsir al-Sa'di. That the meaning of Rabb is al-Murabbi, the one who nurtures. The one who nurtures all of the alameen. Wahum man Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he says, the alameen is everyone besides Allah. So he gave a definition of alameen. Alameen is the plural of alam. Alam is the world. Alameen are all of the worlds. But if someone asks you, Al-Imam Al-Sa'di, what did he explain al-alameen? He said al-alameen is everything except Allah. Everything except Allah. The angels, the, the human beings, the jinn, the animals, the plants, the trees, all of them are under the tarbiyah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah has nurtured them and raised them up. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took you out as a, first of all, nutfa, as a drop. Then, alaqa, a, a clot of blood. Then, mudgha, a chewed lump. Then, as a tifl, as a small uh, baby. And he was born as a small baby. Then you reached your age of strength and understanding. Then some of us will become old people. And so on. This is from the nurturing of Allah And more than that, the nurturing that He gave you in your Iman. The fact that He nurtured you in your Iman. So He is Al-Murabbi, the one who nurtures everything besides Him. By creating them. Number one, by creating them. Because one of the meanings of a rabb is al-khaliq. One of the meanings of a rabb is al-khaliq. So one of the ways that he nurtured them is by creating them. And by providing for them means. They need the means by which they live, by which they breathe. Allah provided for us oxygen. Well, if the, if the number percentage of oxygen went down a bit or up a bit, we would die. Allah provided for us sunlight. If the sun went away, we would die. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provided a perfect environment for us to live, water for us to drink. If we didn't have water, we would die. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provided for us tools by which we could build houses and which we could move from place to place and animals to ride on. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us everything that we need to be able to live. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he continues, bestowed upon them, yani upon the alameen, all or some, or, uh, he bestowed upon them huge graces, huge blessings, huge ni'mah. Blessings which, if they had lost them, they would not be able to live. And think of all of the blessings of Allah. If a handful of those blessings went away, we would not be able to live. Wallahi, and even the smallest of blessings, even the blessing of the AC, 
any of the small blessings. Wallahi, any, if you have the AC breaks in your house, you, Allahumma sta'an, and you live like you, you, you know, like you can't, you can't manage, you can't bear it. Even though the people bear it in some places, and they used to bear it in the earlier generations, but even the smallest of things, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes these blessings away, you become, and some of you, you know, your phone breaks for two days and you start having withdrawal symptoms. Without these blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you can't possibly live. And Allah has given you so many blessings. These are, the, these are baby things. What about the blessing of the heart, the blessing of the lungs, the blessing of the eyesight, the blessing of being able to hear, the blessing of being able to speak? All of these blessings that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that if we were to lose them, we would not be able to live. And he said, so whatever blessings they have are from him, be exalted. Whatever blessing you have, it comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then he said, and his nurturing of his creation is of two types. The nurturing of his creation is of two types, general and specific. The general nurturing is his creation of everything that exists and his provision of them or for them and his guidance to what will benefit them which by which they are able to live in this dunya. So if you're asked, what did Imam Sa'di say about the general nurturing of Allah? He said regarding the general nurturing of Allah that it is the creation, provision, and guidance to those things which will benefit them by which they can remain alive in this dunya. And as for the specific, as for the specific nurturing, it is the nurturing that Allah gives to his awliya, to his beloved. So he nurtures them upon iman and he gives them the success to be able to achieve that iman. And he completes that iman for them. And he keeps them away from anything which would take them away from that and any obstacles which would come between them and between their iman. <coughs> and between its reality. This is the tarbiyah of tawfiq. The tarbiyah of Allah's tawfiq. Allah giving you the success to be able to be a believer to everything which is good. And al-isma, the protection from ev against everything which is evil. And perhaps this reason is the secret, he says. Perhaps this reason is the secret as to why the majority of the dua of the prophets is made with al-rabb. Because all of the things they are asking for come within the topic of al-rububiyyat al-khasa his specific nurturing so when the prophets are asking allah to make them from the believers to bless them in their da'wah to make it their people believe all of this comes within the special nurturing of allah and for that reason it makes sense for them to make dua to allah with rabbana our lord and he says, perhaps this is the secret 
behind why most of the dua of the prophets is made with Rabbana. Because they're asking Allah for tarbiyah khasa, for a special nurturing, a nurturing of iman and tawfiq and jannah and protection from the hellfire. He said, so his statement, Rabbul Alameen, indicates that he is the only one who creates and the only one who controls and the only one who bestows blessings. And it indicates the completeness of his richness that Allah is not in need of anything else. And the completeness of the poverty of everything besides him. And that everything besides him is in desperate need of him. And Allah is rich and not in need of anyone. In every single way and in every single means of understanding. So in every way, what does Rabbul Alameen indicate? It indicates that Allah is the only one who creates and controls and blesses. And that Allah is not in need of anything besides Him. And everyone is in need of... I mean, Allah is not in need of anyone else. And Allah and everything else is in need of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is an explanation of Tawheed al-Rububiyyah. The Tawheed of the Rububiyyah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because this ayah gathers all of the types of Tawheed. Tawheed as for the tawheed of al-rububiyyah in the statement of Allah Rabb, that Allah is the Lord the creator, the sustainer, the provider as for al-uluhiyyah in the statement Allah alhamdulillah alhamdulillah this is uluhiyyah that we worship Allah and we don't devote worship to anyone other than him and as for the Asma wa Sifat, then you have the, the name of Allah, Allah, and the name Ar-Rabb, and the, the attribute or the name Rabbul Alameen. So this is an ayah which gathers together all of the types of Tawheed in one ayah. So he explains to you Tawheed al-Rububiyyah, which is the creation, control, and blessings that come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that Allah needs no one and everyone else needs Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Maliki Yawmiddin. He said, Al Malik, again, straight away, names and attributes. Al Malik, he is the one who is described with the attribute of Al Mulk, of dominion, which from its effects is that he is the one who commands and he is the one who prohibits. So, one of the meanings of Al Mulk, kingship or dominion is that Allah is the one who tells you what you can do and what you can't do. And He gives reward and He punishes because the Supreme King, the Supreme Sovereign, the one who owns everything in the heavens and the earth, He is the one who punishes and He is the one who rewards. And He is the one who does with his possession every kind of thing that he wishes to do. And there is Allah does with us whatever he wants. And everything is his. Everything belongs to him. And if everything belongs to him, then 
he is the one who has the right to do whatever he wants with his creation because everything belongs to him. And Allah attached his dominion to Yawm al-Deen, which is Yawm al-Qiyamah, the day in which the people will be judged for their deeds, the good of them and the bad of them. Because al-Deen, it means judgment. Judgment between the good and the bad. Because on that day, it will become apparent to his creation completely the true perfection of his dominion and his justice and his wisdom. Many people may say today from the atheists, they say there is no God. I own what I own. Or like Fir'aun, they say, I do not think you have a God except me. Those people, it is only on Yawmuddin, the day of judgment, the day of recompense, the day of Qiyamah, that they will recognize that in reality, everything was part of the mulk of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And everything was under his control. And everything was created by him. And he did with it whatever he wanted. The reason Yawmuddin is attached there is to show you that it is on that day that people will truly recognize the extent of Allah's sovereignty over his creation. They will not recognize Allah's sovereignty until that day. As for the believers, they recognize Allah's sovereignty in this dunya and in the akhirah. But for the entire of his creation to recognize his sovereignty, this will truly happen on the day of judgment. Because it is then that they will realize لِمَنِ الْمُلْكُ الْيَوْمِ who does the sovereignty belong to on that day? Lillahi al-wahid al-qahar. To Allah, the only one. The one that cannot be resisted. So that is why it will become apparent to the whole of creation on that day that Allah is al-malik and Allah is al-malik. That will become apparent to the people on Yawm al-Din. Likewise, His justice People may say, Allah is not just. Ta'ala Allah, amma yaqulun, high is Allah above what they say. They may say, why is Allah doing this to me? But on the day of judgment, the justice of Allah and the wisdom of Allah will become apparent to all of His creation. And so for this reason, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Maliki yawmiddin. And on that day, all of the ownership of creation will be cut off. You will not be even carrying one dirham with you that you own. You will not even own shoes to walk in. You will not even own clothes to wear. You will own absolutely nothing on that day. And so it will be clear that everything belonged to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No king will come with his kingdom. And that was why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say, where are the kings? Ain al-muluk, where are the kings on this day? Because there will be no dominion on this day except for, Allah, for the dominion that is belonging to Allah And the reality is that any king in this dunya only has been given his kingdom by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it is a part of Allah's kingdom that he has given to that person. And this will only become truly clear on the day of judgment. He continued by saying, on that day, the kings and their subjects 
and the slaves and the free people will be equal. So on that day, the slave will be in the same position as the king. And the king will be in the same position as his subject. The free person will be equal to the slave. And that is why another reason why Allah says Maliki Yawmiddin because on that day the true ownership will become clear that the sovereignty and ownership is only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All of them will be submissive to his greatness and his majesty or his power. All of them will be waiting for him to take them to account. All of them will be hoping for his reward. All of them will be fearing his punishment. As opposed to now, only the believers are hoping for the reward of Allah and fearing his punishment. But on Yawm deen every single one of the creation, whether they were a king or a subject, whether they were a slave or a free man, will be begging Allah for his mercy and fearing Allah's punishment. So for that reason, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned it specifically. However, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Maliki Yawmiddin and Malik of every other day as well. So Imam Sa'di is saying it is not that Allah is Maliki Yawmiddin and not the Malik of any other day. Allah is the Malik of Yawmiddin and Allah is the Malik of every other day. But because on Yawm al-Din the whole of creation will realize that Allah is Al-Malik, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned Maliki Yawm al-Din. Meaning, we single you out alone with worship and with seeking help. We single you out alone with worship and seeking help. Because, again, uh, here, it's a little bit of a grammar point, but I'll, I'll try and simplify it for you, like without going into Arabic grammar. The fact that Iyaka is mentioned before Na'bud indicates that it is only possible to worship Allah and nobody else. If we had said about Allah Azza wa Jal, na'buduka wa nasta'inuk, it would not be as, uh, as clear or as emphatic. But when we say, iyaka na'bud wa iyaka nasta'in, iyaka being repeated at the beginning of the verb indicates that this is absolutely and completely for Allah Azza wa Jal in every single way. And it can never be for anyone else under any circumstances. And this affirms Al Hukum, and it affirms the and it, The, 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 the legislation or the right to legislate of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that it doesn't belong to anyone other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not the legislation, it affirms the rule and it affirms, the, it affirms that this applies to it affirms that this applies to the one being mentioned and not to anyone else 
So it is as if you are saying, we worship you and we do not worship anyone else and we seek help from you and we do not seek help for, from anyone else. And that is what it says. It's as if we are saying, we worship you and we do not worship anyone else and we seek help from you and we do not seek help from anyone else. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put worship before seeking help. From the point of putting something general before something specific. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Allah put worship. Why did Allah put worship before seeking help? This is, as we say, mentioning something general and then mentioning a specific part of that general thing. And this happens in the Quran. For example, من كان عدوا لله وملائكته ورسله وجبريل وميكال فإن الله عدو للكافر Whoever is an enemy to Allah's angels and messengers and to Jibreel and Mikal. Okay, Jibreel is one of the angels and messengers. So why mention angels and messengers and then mention Jibreel? When Jibreel is one of the messengers. Likewise, إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات Good deeds are a part of Iman by consensus of Ahlul Sunnah. So why mention good deeds after Iman? Why not just say, Why say, All of these are from the same example. They are from تقديم العام على الخاص Mentioning something general and then mentioning a specific part of that general thing that was just mentioned. For the sake of giving importance to the right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala over the right of his slaves. So this is the first reason that Imam al-Sa'di mentions for giving precedence for ibadah and then Ibadah and then seeking help. Because Ibadah is the right of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And seeking help is a type of Ibadah. But when you talk about seeking help, you think about who? You think about yourself. When you talk about seeking help, you think about yourself as it relates to Allah. When you talk about Ibadah, then you think about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Imam al-Sa'di said that putting the right of Allah before the right of his slave. And he putting what belongs to Allah before those things that benefit the, or that are like, you know, that are something that is in your interests, getting help from Allah. This is the first uh, any concept. Uh, some of the scholars mentioned another, uh, another reason for this. They said that isti'ana is one of the most common things that people make shirk in. And when you say, you alone we worship, that's understood. But when we say, you alone we ask for help, it emphasizes that many, many people fall into making a partner with Allah by asking others for help. And if you look at the Muslims today who fall into shirk, 99% of the shirk that they fall into is isti'ana, seeking the help. So you hear them say, Ya Ali, aghithni, or Ali, help me. And you hear them say, Ya Ali, al-madad, give me help, give me, and so on and so forth. 
and they call Ya Abdul Qadir Al Madad, O Abdul Qadir, give me help. All of this is isti'ana. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala highlighted it so that the Muslims don't fall into the most common means for making a partner with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that is seeking help from other than Him in that which only He can do subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then Imam Sa'di he says, Al Ibadah is a comprehensive term for everything which Allah loves and is pleased with, from statement and action, that which is apparent and that which is, or that which is external and that which is internal. To the best of my knowledge, he took this, te- this from Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala. And this is a manqool, and it's, it's a quote from Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala, that ibadah is a comprehensive term for everything that Allah loves and is pleased with from statement and action, whether external or internal. So everything Allah loves and is, first of all, a comprehensive term. A comprehensive term meaning it covers lots of things. Ibadah is not just dua, and it's not just praying, and it's not just sacrificing. Ibadah is a huge term. Worship is a huge term for everything that Allah loves and is pleased with. Whether it is an action or a statement, whether it is in your heart, like fear of Allah, love of Allah, or whether it is on your limbs, like prayer and sacrifice. And al-isti'ana is reliance or trusting upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bring you benefit and keep away from you harm. And trusting in Him to be able to give you that. That is what al-isti'ana is. So when you trust in other than Allah, or you rely upon other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bring benefit to you and to keep harm away from you in those things which only Allah can do. So it's not shirk to say, can you help me lift this table? Because you and me, we can lift the table. But for keeping away for you the harms that only Allah can keep away and bringing benefit that only Allah can bring, then in this, seeking that from other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the greatest sin that a person can do. Then Imam Sa'di, he says, and he says that doing acts of worship and seeking the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is the means of eternal happiness and savior or being saved from every evil. So there is no means to be saved except by doing these two things. Worshipping Allah and by seeking His help. And the only reason that ibadah is ibadah, or the only means that ibadah can be considered to be valid, is that if, it is ta- if that act of worship is taken from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and that if it is intended for the sake of Allah, so he's giving you the two conditions of worship. The first is that it should be in tafsir al-Sa'di. The first mentioned is that it should be ma'khudha an Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It should be taken from the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Any act of worship which is not taken from the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam will never be accepted by Allah. As in the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha, and the wording is that of Sahih Muslim. Man amila amalan laysa alayhi amruna rad. Whoever does an action which is not in accordance with what we have brought for you, it will be rejected. 
And the second condition that it must be sincere for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these two things are that which makes something ibadah. Any something cannot be considered to be worship unless it fulfills these two conditions. It's sincerely for the sake of Allah and it's taken from the sunnah of the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa And the mention of al-isti'ana after ibadah, even though isti'ana is a part of it, is because of the need of the servants in all of their acts of worship to seek the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is another reason why isti'ana is mentioned along with ibadah. Why is iyaka na'bud wa iyaka nasta'een? Because in every act of ibadah, we will need to seek help from Allah. We will not be able to pray, we will not be able to fast, we will not be able to do any act of worship without the help of Allah. And that is why worship comes and then the help of Allah comes. For if Allah does not help him, he will not be able to achieve what he wishes in doing those things which he has been commanded and keeping away from those things which he has been prohibited from. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, إِهْدِنَ الصِّرَاطُ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ Meaning guide us and show us and give us the success to be able to achieve the straight path. And it is the clear path which takes you to Allah and His paradise. So He said, As-Sirat al-Mustaqeem is at-Tariq al-Wadih, the clear path which takes you to Allah and His paradise. And it is knowing the truth and acting upon it. And look at the benefits, small words, only just one or two lines, but He gives you the benefit. What is this Sirat al-Mustaqeem according to Al-Imam al-Sa'di? It is Ma'rifatul Haqq wal-Amalu bihi Knowing the truth and acting upon it. Knowing the truth and acting upon it. So when we say, guide us to the straight path, we say guide us to the path and guide us on the path. And Imam al-Sa'di said, guide us to the path so we know where it is and guide us on the path so we keep on it. Guide us to the path and guide us on the path. So being guided to the straight path is to stick firmly to the religion of Islam and to leave every other religion besides it. So this is the, one of the mentions he says, to be guided to the straight path is to stick firmly to the religion of Islam and to avoid everything which is beside it from all of the other religions. And being guided to the straight path includes being guided to all of the secondary religious issues in knowledge and action. So the first meaning, being guided to the straight path, is being guided to Islam and sticking to it. And avoiding every other religion besides Islam. And the second meaning of being guided to the straight path is being guided to the tafasil, the details. The details, you know that, not just being guided to Islam, okay, I'm a Muslim but being guided to how to pray properly, being guided to how to fast properly, being guided to how to make dua properly, all of the, the individual details, ilman wa amala, in knowledge and action, because we need Allah to guide us to know the right thing and to do the right thing, not just to know the right thing. And you have a group of people who know the right thing, but they don't do the right thing. 
So we're asking Allah to guide us to know the right thing and to do the right thing. And he said, this dua is from the most comprehensive of dua and the most beneficial of them for the servant. And there is almost no dua more beneficial or it is among the most beneficial of all the dua that you can make. And for this reason, it is an obligation for every person to make dua with this dua in every raka'ah of his prayer because of our desperate need of this dua. And this straight path, it is Sirat al-Ladina an'amta alayhim. The description of this straight path, it is the path of those upon whom you have bestowed your favor. Notice how Allah describes the prophets here. Those who the favor of Allah has been given to them, the blessing, the extra, the bonus. Any ni'mah is what you give someone in addition to what they deserve. Because you don't see a ni'mah for a wage. A wage you call it a ratib or you call it ajr. Yani you get ujur. You know, you, get, you do something, you get your wage. And ni'mah is something you give to somebody additional to what they actually deserve. And he says, who are those who Allah has bestowed his favor upon? They are an-nabiyyin, the prophets. Was-siddiqeen, and the truthful ones like Abu Bakr siddiq Was-shuhada, the martyrs. And as-saliheen, and the righteous. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us this. And this is tafsir al-Qur'ani bil-Qur'an. This is a perfect example of explaining the Qur'an with the Qur'an. Because Allah Azza wa Jal said, in Surah An-Nisa, if I'm not mistaken, but I'll check that any, I'm just off the top of my head. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala described those those who Allah has bestowed his favor upon. Min al-Nabiyyin was-Siddiqeen was-Shuhada was-Salihin wa hasuna ulaika rafiqa. So Allah Azza wa Jal in this ayah explains an'amta alayhim. Fa'ulaika ma'al-ladhina an'ama Allahu alayhim min al-Nabiyyin was-Siddiqeen was-Shuhada was-Salihin wa hasuna ulaika rafiqa. So Allah explains the meaning of Sirat al-Ladheena an'amta alayhim. Who are al-Ladheena an'amta alayhim? Who has Allah given his favor to? To the prophets and the truthful and the martyrs and the righteous and what an excellent group of companions they are. Ghayr, and he's starting Ghayr al-Maghdubi alayhim. Ghayr, i.e. Ghayr al-Sirat, not the path of. In the meaning of Ghayr, here, Ghayr, yani Ghayr al-Sirat. So he's telling you that there is a word which is understood here. When we say غير المغضوب عليهم, the meaning of غير المغضوب عليهم, غير الصراط or غير صراط المغضوب عليهم. Not the path of those. And that's why if you look at Muhsin Khan, you will see in brackets, not the path. Not the path of those. I.e. do not take us to Take us to the straight path, the path of the prophets and the truthful and the martyrs and the righteous. And don't take us to the path of those who have earned your anger. Your anger is upon them. Those who know the truth and have left it. 
like the Jews and similar to them. Now, this is very, very important because when you sometimes see, and I can't remember in Muhsin Khan, I believe that probably they write not the path of those who have earned your anger, open brackets, the Jews, and those who have gone astray, open brackets, the Christians. The Jews and the Christians are an example of each one. And they are not the only people that come under Al-Maghdubi alayhim and Al-Dalim. Rather, the general understanding of Al-Maghdubi alayhim are the Jews and all those who are similar to the Jews, i.e. everyone who knows the truth and refuses to act upon it. Everyone who knows the truth, غير Sarat, and other than the path of Al-Dalim. Those who left the truth because of their ignorance and misguidance, like the Christians and those who are similar to them. So again, Imam Sa'di is giving you the, the comprehensive understanding that the example the Prophet ﷺ gave, when the Prophet ﷺ said they are the Jews and the Christians, is an example, not a comprehensive description. Like when the, the tafsir of the Prophet ﷺ, when he said, that Al-Maghdubi alayhim are the Jews and Al-Dalin are the Christians is an example of tafsir by example. I.e. giving an example or giving a, like you can say, a, uh, an application of who these people are and it includes all those who are similar to them. So anybody who knows the truth and doesn't act upon it is similar to the Jews. And everyone who doesn't know the difference between the truth and falsehood is similar to the Christians. So the ayah was revealed regarding the Jews and the Christians and all those who are similar to them. So if you're asked who are al-Maghdubi alayhim according to al-Imam al-Sa'di, the answer is they are those who know the truth but don't act upon it. Like the Jews and those who are similar. And in who are al-Dalin, they are those who do not know the truth or who turn away from the truth because of their ignorance and misguidance like the Christians and all those who are similar to the Christians. He then concludes by saying this surah even though it is very very short this surah even though it is very very short it covers though it covers a huge range of uh, of uh, content which is, you know, cannot be found in such a summarized way in any other surah in the Quran. It covers the types of tawheed al-thalatha. So he's going to tell you about the three types of tawheed now. It covers the three types of tawheed. Tawheed al-rububiyya, the tawheed of Allah's lordship, which is taken from Rabbul Alameen. And the tawheed al-ilahiyya. And as you guys will be summarizing now when you, if you're doing your your summary um, notes. We covered this in Thalathat al-Usul. Tawheed al-Ilahiyya. The Tawheed of Allah's worship. And that is that Allah should be worshipped alone. And it is taken from the word Allah. And from his statement, Iyaka na'bud. Yani the word Allah indicates Tawheed al-Ilahiyya or Tawheed al-Uluhiyya. And the word Iyaka Na'bud likewise indicates Tawheed Al-Uluhiyya. And Tawheed Al-Asma'u Al-Sifat. 
the tawheed of Allah's names and attributes and that is to affirm the attributes of perfection for Allah Azza wa Jal those that he affirmed for himself and those that his messenger affirmed from him without denying them and without comparing Allah Azza wa Jal to his creation or resembling Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to his creation or making Allah resemble his creation as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as this is evidenced by the statement alhamd yani alhamd that this is only for Allah and not for anybody else only for Allah and not for anybody else as we have previously mentioned and it contains the affirmation of prophethood in the statement of Allah because it is not possible to be guided to the straight path without the prophets and the messengers so if you're asked how is prophethood affirmed in Surah Al-Fatiha prophethood is affirmed in Surah Al-Fatiha by the statement المستقيم, because this is the statement which affirms that it is impossible for you to be guided to the religion of Islam without the prophets and the messengers and it affirms الجزاق, the, the, that there will be reward and punishment for the actions that people have done in the statement Maliki Yawmiddin because reward and punishment are through Allah's justice and the meaning of ad-deen is al-jaza' bil-adl the meaning of ad-deen is al-jaza' bil-adl reward and punishment in justice so when you talk about ad-deen what is the meaning of ad-deen according to al-imam al-sa'di ad-deen means reward and punishment injustice or just reward and punishment that's probably a better way of saying it just reward and punishment reward and punishment that take place based upon justice and it contains the affirmation of al-qadr it contains affirming the belief in al-qadr because the servant is really doing actions as opposed to what the Qadariya and the Jabariya say. And he said that Surah Al-Fatiha is a refutation against the Qadariya and the Jabariya. Because it affirms that we are doing actions in of ourselves, but that those actions are within the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He said, rather, this surah refutes every single group from Ahlul Bid'ah wa Dalal. Every single group of Bid'ah and misguidance are refuted by Surah Al Fatiha. In the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, Ihdina Sirat al Mustaqeen. Sirat al Ladin al Amta alayhim ghayr al Maldubi alayhim wa al Because knowing the truth and acting upon it. Yani, uh, because this is knowing the truth and acting upon it. And every mubtadi', every innovator, and every misguided person is in opposition to that. And every innovator and every misguided person is not upon the sirat al-mustaqeen and is upon the path of al-maghdubi alayhim or al-dalleen. Either they do not know the bid'ah that they are doing is wrong and therefore they are from al-dalleen. Or either they know that the bid'ah 
that they are doing is wrong, so they are from al-maghdubi alayhim. And it contains ikhlas al-deen lillah, singling out the religion for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in worship and in seeking help. In the statement of iyaka na'budu wa iyaka nasta'een falhamdulillahi rabbil alameen So all praises to Allah, the Lord of the worlds. We just go back to the issue of Qadr because maybe it didn't. Uh, the Tafsir al-Sa'di is very summarized in this and you want to understand the affirmation of uh, Al-Qadr wal-Qadha. What Imam al-Sa'di is saying here is Surah Al-Fatiha affirms that we have actions through Iyaka na'budu wa Iyaka nasta'in that we are the ones who are doing those actions. This instantly refutes the Jabariyyah who think that we are puppets on strings and that Allah is the one who is forcing us or compelling us to worship Him and we have no ability to do anything in that. So Alhamdulillah is a refutation of them and Iyaka na'budu wa Iyaka nasta'in is a refutation of them because it affirms an action for us and likewise of the Qadariyyah who said that there is no such thing as Qadr and that everything is random. When we say, إِهْدِنَ الصِّرَاطِ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ We affirm that our actions can only take place by tawfiq from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, by success from Allah. So if you look at the whole meaning, and you, could, you don't have to use those two ayahs, you could use other parts of the surah. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Likewise, it proves that we are the ones praising Allah. Allah is not praising Himself. Allah is praising Himself and we are praising Him. But it affirms that we have an action, alhamdulillah. And at the same time, it affirms that we can only do it through the help of Allah who is Rabbul Alameen. And one of the meanings of our Rabb is affirming Qadr and Qada. Because the meaning of our Rabb is the one who has complete control over all of his creation. So when you say Rabbul Alameen or Rabbil Alameen, you refute the Qadariyah. When you say Rabbil Alameen, you refute the Qadariyah because Allah cannot be a Rabb unless He has complete control over His creation. And when you say Alhamdulillah, you refute the Jabariyah who say that everything you do is forced by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you have no ability to worship Him according to your own ability. And the whole of the surah is like this. And in the whole surah is an affirmation of the belief of Ahl Sunnah in all of the issues of Tawheed and Aqeedah. And this shows you the foolishness of the people who say there is no aqidah in the Qur'an. Like some of the famous du'at of our time. And I won't mention names, but you know who they are. And they say there is no aqidah in the Qur'an. And that is why I wrote a reply to one of them and I said to him, I seek refuge from the one who makes tafsir of the Qur'an and doesn't understand Surah Al-Fatiha. Because if that person had understood, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, he would not have made that statement. And yet he makes tafsir of the Qur'an from Al-Fatiha to Surah Al-Nas. And until now he has not understood Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. And until this day he has not got to the point where he has understood Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. And that is why he says there is no aqidah in the Qur'an. Surah Al-Fatiha is aqidah from the first word until the last word. From Bismillah rahman rahim until... All of it is aqidah. All of it is tawheed. All of it is a refutation of the people of bid'ah and ahwa and talal. This is Surah Al-Fatiha from the beginning all the way to the end. 
And so you appreciate that Surah Al-Fatiha being Umm Al-Quran is a summary of everything that the Quran contains. And therefore, when we say the whole of the Quran is Aqeedah, we have an evidence. Allah, what is your evidence, O Muhammad? That the whole of the Quran is Aqeedah? Because the whole of Surah Al-Fatiha is Aqeedah from beginning to end. And Surah Al-Fatiha is Umm Al-Quran, as the Prophet ﷺ described it, Umm Al-Quran. فَإِنَّهَا لَا صَلَاةَ لِمَنْ لَمْ يَقْرَأْ بِأُمِّ الْقُرْآنِ And Umm Al-Quran means that it summarizes all of the other meanings that are found within the Quran. And since it is Aqeedah from beginning to end, then the Quran is Aqeedah from beginning to end. Like Ibn Al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala said, every single ayah is Tawheed in the Quran. There is not a single ayah in the Quran that is not a part of Tawheed. Either telling you that you have to have Tawheed or warning you against not having Tawheed or giving an example of the people who have Tawheed or giving you the example of the people who fell into shirk or commanding you with a command which is a part of the Tawheed of Allah or forbidding you from something which is a part of the Tawheed of Allah Azza wa Jal. Allah's forbidding and commanding is a part of His a part of his rububiyyah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the whole of the Qur'an is Tawheed and the whole of the Qur'an is Aqeedah from beginning to end. And that is why, or that is the evidence for which we say this. And alhamdulillah, we finished uh, the tafsir of Surah Al-Fatiha according to the, the uh, tafsir of Imam Al-Sa'di. It's very summarized. Actually, I'm mostly, most of the lecture was me explaining what Imam Al-Sa'di said. But if you read it from Al-Sa'di itself, it's very, very short and very summarized. A few lines about every ayah. Sometimes just a word, like غير المغضوب عليهم, those who know the truth but don't act on it, like the Jews. والضالين, those who turn away from the truth out of ignorance and misguidance, like the Christians. A few words with each one. But you see the value of tafsir al-Sa'di. When you, when you study Surah Al-Fatiha from this tafsir, you see the value of it. And that it is not just like a translation that you read and you pick up a few words. And you get meanings that will help you in your salah, that will help you in your worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that will help you in your getting near to Allah azza wa jal. And alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Okay. We have some questions inshallah ta'ala. We have a little bit of time today, 20 minutes or so for questions. Uh, I want to take these ones first from the essential questions. Uh, as some people were asking about the word-for-word -word translation of the Quran and people who do word-for-word -word Quran interpretation. Like, you know, when you go to a class and they do word-by-word. -word. And sometimes people are asked, you know, you give your tafsir, you give your tafsir. So is this halal or is it haram? In general, if you have a teacher who is guiding you through that, there is no harm in it. There's no harm in me saying to you, who can give me what they think is the tafsir of the ayah, as long as I qualify that and say, yes it is or no it isn't. But as for just asking people randomly to give tafsir, and then not qualifying or giving any answer to that, like just saying, you give the tafsir, you think, okay, all of us, yani, we all reach Allah, all the roads lead to Rome, and all of the tafsirs lead to Allah, then this is not correct. This comes under what Shaykh al-Islam al taymiyyah warned against at the end of his muqaddimah. Tafsir bil-hawa, tafsir in, by desires and by al-aql, 
Mujarrad al-Aqal, just using your intellect to think about what the ayah means. But if it's part of a class and I say, okay, who can give me what they think? Who thinks they know the tafsir of this ayah? I do, I think it means this. And then I say, okay, you're right about this. I don't think you have an evidence for this. What do you think? This is valid and constructive. There's no harm in this. But if it's just everyone giving a tafsir that they think, then this is not valid. If, however, people are giving tafsir based on research, so everyone comes together and says, okay, I'm going to read you. I found in tafsir al-Sa'di that he said, one, two, three, four, five. And I found in tafsir ibn Kathir that he said, one, two, three, four, five. This is not tafsir by the intellect. This is tafsir by narrations and by the Quran and by the Sunnah, inshallah. But in general, we don't encourage people to make a tafsir from their own mind without having someone to then say, yes, you are right or no, you are. No, you are wrong. So hopefully that answers those questions. Some people asked questions previously, which I had already answered. Uh, I answered them in the Friday night reflections, your questions answered, I think. So if you, um, sometimes if you missed a question, I don't believe I've left any questions. So if you've, if you've missed a question, you might find it was answered in the Friday night reflections, which is on Kalima's YouTube. It's called your questions, uh, your questions answered. So I'm not getting any more questions from the sister's side at the moment. Sometimes they come late. So if the brothers have any questions, they're welcome to ask. This one, okay. This one says, uh, I have a brother, nieces and nephews. They reside in the UAE. Traditional schooling isn't feasible anymore, deen and dunya-wise. Can you recommend an online school or homeschooling teacher? What is your advice? I have a full lecture on this topic, inshallah ta'ala. So the first thing I would say to people is, um, is if you watch the lecture, I think it's called something like your children's education. What you do, go to Kalima's YouTube and on their YouTube itself, do the search. Not the search on the whole of YouTube, just the search on their channel and search for education. I think the top result will come up. It's something like called your children's education. Uh, in it, I talked extensively about homeschooling, about uh, how to teach your kids at home and stuff like that. If that answers your question, Alhamdulillah, if it doesn't, then I would say uh, email me for the particular parts that you're not generically like, what do you advise? Because I gave my advice in that lecture, but specifically like we're looking for, for example, online school. Online schools, there are a number of, um, of websites. And to be honest, I don't think at the moment there is a good Islamic one that I would say to you like Islamically use this. But there are plenty of good generic uh, homeschooling websites. Uh, which I have mentioned in that link. So if you actually go to the YouTube channel and watch that video in the link There are like three or four maybe five websites that I recommend that I've just used and they are non-muslim websites But alhamdulillah because you're homeschooling your kids you have the ability to be able to take away anything that isn't suitable um, You know take away anything that might be uh, you know that you might not be confident with but generally you know, I've never had to take anything away yet. I've never seen anything in there as of yet that has caused me any, you know, any cause for, any cause for concern. Online tutors, I'm not really aware of, but I'm sure you can find them by asking. Both Dubai and Sharjah have homeschooling groups. That is, they have societies or clubs for parents who homeschool their children. And you can contact them, ta'ala, and they will also give you advice about tutors or meetings where people can learn more, inshallah. But I believe that video will answer 99% of your, of your questions, inshallah. It's called something like your children's education or something like that. Um, or how do we educate our something like that. 
and in the description there are a whole bunch of links to, to websites and things like that uh, and then again for further information I would recommend you contact uh, the Dubai I don't know what's called Dubai homeschooling association or something like that just google it you should be able to find they have whatsapp groups they have you know like information where you can reach them and they will advise you about tutors for your particular course that you are doing for your kids um, and anything else after that you're welcome to uh, email me and ask inshallah do we have any more questions from the brothers side if the sisters have any questions uh, if the kalima volunteers could upload them okay i think i've got one uploaded here from the sisters side when we say whoever has taqwa of allah he will make for him a way out sometimes when we are talking about the quran and allah we might say like you know how amazing it is when allah uh, that's not clear what it says and then it says here for example the above ayah allah uh, in it the surah of allah used it okay oh, isn't it amazing when allah used it here okay and isn't it amazing that allah put this particular ayah in this particular surah for example the above ayah allah used it in the surah of divorce which is a very hard thing to bear and allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used it in the surah uh, of divorce yani, is it is it uh, allowed to do this i guess i'm doing my best to try to explain what the question says so i'm going to summarize what i believe the question says is it allowed for us to bear in mind the surah in which allah azza wa jal revealed an ayah in and to take a benefit from that for example allah said whoever <coughs> whoever has taqwa of allah he will make for him a way out and that this is mentioned in the surah of divorce and that indicates that divorce is something very hard but allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make a way through divorce for those people who uh, for those people who um, fear Allah or those people who have taqwa of Allah. I think to a certain extent, yes. I think it's easier than that. Instead of seeing the surah, seeing the context is easier. It's a little safer. Instead of seeing the surah, because someone might say, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Ya amanu if you take a debt to a certain, you know, for a prescribed period of time, write it down. And this is in Surah Al-Baqarah. So what is the connection between the debt and the Baqarah? There is no connection between the debt and the, and the Baqarah here. And it's not that you take a debt for a cow or that it relates to a cow in some way. But what you see is the context. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned divorce. And then Allah said, وَمَن يَتَّقِ اللَّهَ يَجَعَلْ لَهُ مَخْرَجًا so it's clear that this has a link to divorce because it's mentioned around the ayat of divorce. The ayat of divorce come before it and come, come after it. Therefore, because it's mentioned in the context of divorce, we say that it is valid to say that this, is a, this mentions or shows us that even in the difficulty of the situation of divorce, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used this ayah in this place. But yes, it is valid to say that where Allah put the ayah is relevant to the tafsir of the ayah. It's not the only thing relevant to the tafsir of the ayah, but where the ayah is, the context, the ayat that come before and after, give you part of the tafsir of the ayah. So there's definitely, uh, it's completely valid what the sister said, 
But I would recommend to the sister that instead of going by the surah name, that you go by the context. I mean, the surah is talking about divorce. It starts with the issue of divorce. يَا أَيُّهَا النَّبِيُّ إِذَا طَلَّقْتُمُ النِّسَاءِ فَطَلِّقُوهُنَّ لِعِدَّتِهِنَّ And so it starts about talking about divorce. And then after talking about divorce and then continuing to talk about divorce in the middle of that context, Allah says, وَمَنْ يَتَّقِ اللَّهَ يَجَعَلْ لَهُ مَخْرَجًا So there's no doubt that this has a relation to, to the issue of divorce because of the context. But don't take it too far and relate every ayah in Surah Al-Baqarah to a Baqarah. Or every ayah in Surah Ali Imran to the family of Imran. Or every ayah in Surah An-Nisa only applies to the women, for example. And don't take it to an extreme, but within the context of the ayat which are mentioned, it's definitely valid. And Allah knows best. An audio tafsir. In, in Arabic, definitely, but in English, I'm not sure who I would... I have heard... I've heard very good things, although I haven't listened to it. Uh, so a brother went to the Jamia Islamiyah with me. His name is Aqil, Aqil Mahmoud, uh, A-Q-E-E-L. And I've heard that he's been doing the tafsir of the Quran, and I've heard very good things about it. I haven't listened to it myself, but I've heard that his uh, tafsir is, is really good. Um, so you, you could look for that. I'm not sure how much of the tafsir he's done. But I've heard that it's good. And I, I went to the university with Aqil, he's a lovely brother. So um, I've heard that his tafsir is, is good and Allah knows best. But I, I don't know how much of it he's done or if he's doing it. I've also heard that Abu Mus'ab, and you all know Abu Mus'ab, everybody knows Abu Mus'ab. Abu Mus'ab has been doing tafsir al Sa'di, and I think he's done a huge portion of the Quran of tafsir al Sa'di in English. So you can get an audio tafsir of tafsir al-Sa'di from Abu Mus'ab. I would have a look on his one way to paradise. Don't ask me Facebook or YouTube or whatever he has. And you guys know better. I think he might even have a website, onewaytoparadise.net, something like that. Anyways, it's called One Way to Paradise. And on there, he has a morning class. I think it's a Friday morning or, or a Saturday morning, maybe Friday morning, where he is just doing tafsir al-Sa'di. And he's done a good chunk. That's what he told me last time I met him. So those are two resources that I would recommend uh, for you, inshallah. The translation of, uh, of, uh, of Abdullah Yusuf Ali. Uh, Abdullah Yusuf Ali, uh, the translation is, is, you have to give it credit where credit's due that it was one of the first translations by a Muslim of the Qur'an into English. And we have to give him respect for that. And I give him full credit for, for that effort. And also credit for his excellent understanding of Arabic and of uh, English. He has excellent command of the English language and excellent command of Arabic. And he has recognized published works in Arabic and in English. However, uh, there are two problems. One which I would not blame him for and one which he's blameworthy for. The one which he's blameworthy for is that his aqidah was not the aqidah of Ahl sunnah So he has mistakes in aqidah, um, in, in, in his understanding of, of aqidah, he has errors. And the one which he's not blameworthy for, but it's still a criticism, is that the language is extremely difficult to understand because it's written in very old 
classical English. Uh, and it's very difficult to understand. So for that reason, I don't recommend uh, Yusuf Ali as a, a go-to tafsir for people. But I do recommend it for the student who wants to compare language of tafsir because he himself has some very, uh, very praiseworthy skill in, in, uh, in understanding some of the meanings of the ayat. So in terms of somebody studying translation of the Quran, I think yeah, you have to consider it to be an important resource. But I wouldn't recommend people have it in the house or anything as their go-to tafsir. Your go-to tafsir should be Muhsin Khan. If you find Muhsin Khan too hard to read, Sahih International. Sahih International is good, but it has its own faults in it. Um, it the English is, is, in my opinion, is not uh, very good in Sahih International. Even though it was written by, uh, I believe, uh, a sister or a number of sisters who English is their native language. I mean, they're, they're American and they, they, they're reverts to Islam. But I think far too often they follow the literal order of the Arabic words. And he is upon everything, or he is over everything competent. And it's like, I, I don't like that. That's not English. It's not good English. And if you wrote it in an English exam, you would fail your exam. It's not good. It's poor. It's a poor uh, use of English language. But I understood why they did it. And I, I don't have any, you know, subhanAllah, may Allah reward them for their efforts. It's an academic criticism. Otherwise, the effort is amazing. The effort that they did is absolutely amazing. Uh, so I have, you know, my criticism should be understood that I'm not like, you know, I'm not criticizing it in a horrible way. I'm just saying that it's like it has a flaw in that sense. And also some of their choice of language is not like I don't think it's quite right. Like some of the way they translate the names of Allah and the attributes, I don't think that it's quite, I think using words like competent for Allah, I don't think it's the right word to use in English. So I have some criticisms of that. Aqeedah-wise, Muhsin Khan is better. Even though Sahih International, the Aqeedah is generally correct. There are a couple of mulahabat in Aqeedah, a couple of points in Aqeedah which we'd criticize, but generally the Aqeedah of Sahih International is okay. Muhsin Khan is better, but the readability of Sahih International is where it stands out. It's very readable, like you can actually read it, whereas Muhsin Khan is very, very hard to read because there's a lot of brackets and, you know, lists and commas and, you know, things going off on tangents, but Again, you know, you can't blame them for that. They did it for a reason. So for me, what I do is I join between Sahih International and Muhsin Khan. That's my normal day-to-day -day translation of the Quran, is that I will read Muhsin Khan, I'll read Sahih International, and I'll blend them together in a way that I think gives the, the language and gives the aqidah and the meaning in the, right in the right way. But Yusuf Ali, I wouldn't use it on a day-to-day -day basis, but sometimes if I want to see a translation, and I, I want to see something a bit more linguistic, you know, uh, then yeah, I would look at Muhsin Khan and uh, you look at Yusuf Ali and there are others. There are others as well by non-Muslims. The one preferred by non-Muslims is actually Arbery. The Arbery was a, is a non-Muslim professor. And what good can there be in a non-Muslim who translates the Quran? But that's a side issue. Yeah. But Arbery linguistically is very good. You know, I give him credit where credit's due that linguistically Arbery is excellent. And poetically, in terms of balagha and, and, and conveying some of the beauty of the language, Arbery is, is very, very good. And generally, a lot of non-Muslims tend to prefer that. But the danger with Arbery is, of course, you're non-Muslim. So he has no amana whatsoever. And there are other translations. There are translations from older than Yusuf Ali, uh, early translations by non-Muslims, and lots of things you can, you know, if you go into studying translations of the Quran, you can look at them.
and I myself have started a translation. Allah to finish it, but I've started a translation of the Quran which I'm writing for myself, but I'm not writing it from zero. I'm basing it upon the translations that already exist, but selecting the correct wording and trying to improve the quality of the English and stuff like that. And Allah knows best. We'll have to deal with the rest on the way out because quarter past we promised to finish the class. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik ashadu an la ilaha illa anta staghfiruka wa atubu ilayk. upon this so what did we say that he prefers to quote from the Prophet if he doesn't find it he will quote from the Sahaba the Tabi'een and if he doesn't find anything the, the furthest he will go is to quote from generally some exceptions generally is to quote from Ibn Jarir al-Tabari so he's telling you that Ibn Jarir al-Tabari it's understood he didn't say there is consensus but what you understand from his Tafsir is that there is consensus that the name Ar-Rahman is more emphatic than the name Ar-Rahim. It has more emphasis in it. And he said, and in the tafsir of some of the Salaf, some of the early generations, is that which indicates this. As has been previously mentioned from the Athar, from the narration uh, from Isa alayhi salam that he said Ar-Rahman is Rahman al-Dunya wal-Akhirah and Ar-Rahim is Rahim al-Akhirah this is one of the narrations but what he says when he says an al-Athar here indicates to you that this is not a hadith from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. rather it's something that some people said that Isa said Rahman is the Rahman of the Dunya and the Akhirah and Rahim is the Rahim of the Akhirah. And that is one of the opinions uh, regarding that. He then goes on to a point of Arabic, which I'm not going to trouble you with too much, uh, relating to the fact that of whether or not Rahman and Rahim are actually from Rahma or not or whether they are just names that have no understandable sifa and he refutes that and gives an evidence in the statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala وَكَانَ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ رَحِيمًا by mentioning that it comes in a sentence as it, as it would that it comes from the word it comes from the word Ar-Rahma and this is something we mentioned in the names and attributes that the names of Allah Azza wa Jal have sifat, they have attributes and characteristics through which they, we can understand their meanings and their applications. And he mentioned that some of them said that it's a Hebrew word and some of them said some other things. So he mentions them and he replies, to them and refutes them. He refutes them quoting Al-Qurtubi, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, another scholar of tafsir who has an excellent tafsir, tafsir of Al-Qurtubi, mentioning that the evidence that it is from Ar-Rahma can be found in that which was 
reported by Imam al-Tirmidhi and he said it is authentic from Abdul Rahman ibn Auf that he heard the Messenger of Allah وسلم, say that Allah Ta'ala said Rahman, I am the most merciful I created a Rahim I created here it's not clear to me we'll go back to the, to the tafsir of a tirmidhi for the meaning of this but Ar-Rahim generally means the ties of kinship. But here, it doesn't seem like it's Allahu we'll see what it is. We'll see, go back to the translation of a tirmidhi to see what it is. And I extracted from this a name from my names. Uh, it, it, it does refer to, it does refer to, yes. It does refer to the ties of kinship. It's clear at the end of the hadith. And from this, a name from one of my names was taken. So whoever keeps the ties of kinship, I keep the ties with him. And whoever breaks the ties of kinship, I break the ties with him. So this is an evidence that it is that Ar-Rahman comes from Ar-Rahman. And he goes to mention several other evidences uh, for this. He goes on also to give the evidence or to put forward the opinion that Ar-Rahim refers only to the believers. So he said that Abu Ali al-Farisi said, Ar-Rahman is a general name for every kind of mercy that Allah is, that is unique to Allah. Ar-Rahman. It's a name for every kind of mercy that is unique to Allah. And Ar-Rahim is only from the point of the believers. As Allah said, وَكَانَ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ رَحِيمًا He is towards the believers, Rahim. However, we said, as we explained in the previous class, that this has a problem. Because in other ayat of the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that He is to all mankind, Rahim. This is also the, the issue with this. But again, Ibn Kathir is going to narrate this several times. And he narrates many narrations. He says that Ibn Jariya said, uh, and he makes a chain of uh, a narration from one of the early generations that they said Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim Ar-Rahman is for all creation and Ar-Rahim is only for the believers and for that reason Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said Ar-Rahman Al-Arsh Istawa Allah rolls above the throne because this covers all of Allah's creation to which the Rahmah is applied. And he said, because it only applies to the believers. However, and Ibn Kathir is going to say now, he's going to mention the problem with this opinion. He says, however, 
in the dua which is reported from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Rahman al-Dunya wal-Akhirah wa Rahimahuma. The Rahman of the Dunya and the Rahman of the Akhirah and the Rahim of the Dunya and the Akhirah. And he mentions some other ayat regarding this. And he goes on to mention various other uh, points on that topic before he says, or after which he says, as for Ar-Rahim, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has used Rahim as a description for others than him. And he, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has never used Rahman, nor is it permissible to name somebody Rahman. However, Allah has used Rahim for others. He's used Rahim for others besides him. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, لَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ مِنْ أَنفُسِكُمْ عَزِيزٌ عَلَيْهِمَا عَنِدْتُمْ حَرِيسٌ عَلَيْكُمْ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ رَعُوفٌ رَحِيمٌ There has come to you a messenger from yourselves. It's hard on him what troubles you. He is towards, he is keen to, for everything that benefits you. And he is towards the believers, Raufun Rahim. So the Prophet ﷺ was given the title of Rahim, not the title of Ar Rahim, the most merciful, or the bestower of mercy, but the title Rahim, merciful. Likewise, he mentions that mankind is also being given the title Samir and Basir, not As Samir and not Al Basir. But Sami'an Basir. Like Allah just said, Fajalnahu Sami'an Basira. He said, and the conclusion therefore is that some of the names of Allah are from some of the names of Allah are those which others can be named with. And from some of them are those which others cannot be named with. Like Allah. And Ar-Rahman, and Al-Khalib, and Ar-Razzaq, and others. So for this reason, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala began by saying Ar-Rahman. Because it is more specific to him than Ar-Rahim. Meaning that the, the most specific, the one that is the most specific is Ar-Rahman. Because this is only for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and no one has ever been called Rahman other than Allah Azza wa Or those who have, have done so out of any evil like Musaylama al-Kadhab. They said we only know Rahman al-Yamama. We only know Musaylama al-Kadhab, that he is Rahman. So it's not permissible to take the name Rahman. As for Rahim, then without Al, it is permissible to say to somebody, you are Rahim, you are merciful. So from that point of view, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala began Ar-Rahman before he began 
الرحيم Then he said, so if it is said, since Ar-Rahman is more emphatic than Ar-Rahim, then why mention Ar-Rahim at all? And it is narrated from Ata al-Khurasani, the meaning of which is, that there were other people who had taken the name Rahman, as we said, like Musaylama Al-Kadhab. So when Allah Azza wa Jal said Ar-Rahim, this cut off the understanding that Ar-Rahman could be referring to other than Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Because no one is called Rahman and Rahim except Allah. And there were some people who falsely took the name Ar-Rahman. Very famously, as we said, Musaylama al-Kadhab. The false prophet Musaylama. However, when Allah said Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, this cut off the, the misconception because there can be nobody who has the name Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And similarly, this was narrated from Ibn Jarir, from Ata. And he seemed to indicate that this has a, it has a wedge and it has a, it has an, it has a, it, it's a valid point of view. So he, again, Ibn Kathir is going to tell you what he thinks about the different narrations. He's going to tell you, I think this is a valid point of view. And so on. And then he goes on to talk about whether the Arabs knew who Ar-Rahman was or not and what the evidence for that was and several other uh, points regarding Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim. And you can see how long it's taking us just to get to this point. It's a very detailed discussion. So we're going to move on to Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. You see the same thing. And Ibn Kathir is going to mention ikhtilaf. He's going to mention different narrations. He's going to mention authentic and inauthentic. He's going to mention things narrated from the tabi'in. He's going to try to go into the details of why this and why that, and why not this and why not that, and why this was put here and why not this put here, and try to answer some of the criticisms that people might have said, that, such as that the Arabs did not know who Ar-Rahman was. Because some people got confused by the statement, who is Ar-Rahman? They said that this means the Arabs did not know the word Ar-Rahman. And so Ar-Rahim was included to explain to them who Ar-Rahman was. But the correct tafsir of Rahman is that they knew who Ar-Rahman was, but that they were being stubborn and obstinate. Like when you say to somebody, go and, you know, go and give this pen to Muhammad over there. I don't know who Muhammad is. He's just being obstinate and he's just being, he's just being awkward, like trying to make a statement. So the statement, Wamar Rahman, was not one of their, was not genuine from them, that they did not know who Ar Rahman was. And he replies to this with a number of different issues. Does he mention every opinion? No, he doesn't. Because as we've said, there are other opinions we've seen in other books which are additional to these opinions. 
And I have skipped quite a lot because we simply would not finish even Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim today if we went through everything that Ibn Kathir said. But I want you to get a feel for the book. The advantages and the disadvantages. Because there are disadvantages. You guys are now reading Ibn Kathir, having read Tafsir al-Sa'di. The advantage to this is, you have an idea of the rajih, the correct opinion. Now I'm not saying that everything al-Sa'di says is correct. But generally, you have an idea of the correct opinion. So now when you read 15 different opinions in Ibn Kathir, you don't feel like you're drowning. You feel a little confused because you have to go to each opinion and say, is it sahih, is it not sahih? And sometimes Ibn Kathir does not make tarjih. He does not say this is correct or this is not correct. He might indicate, usually sometimes the scholars say, any ways of indicating or mentioning an opinion first or mentioning an opinion last. You could mention an opinion first and that might indicate that it's the strongest opinion in your, some of the scholars do this in their books. The opinion they mention first, that is their opinion. With Ibn Kathir, it tends more to be the opinion he mentions last, although not always. But it tends more to be the opinion he mentions last. If he mentions a long list of them, it's often the one that he mentions last. But often he doesn't make tarjih. He doesn't say, I, this, is, this is correct and this isn't correct. And so you're left, if you don't have a grounding, something to ground yourself in, you're left drowning in a big ocean of opinions and ikhtilaf and, and all of them seem to be related from the tabi'een and so on. But there's two things we did before this to help you with Ibn Kathir. The first thing that we did is the principles of tafsir by Shaykh Islam of Taymiyyah. So you realize that the majority of opinions where it says Mujahid said this and Ata said this, and Ikrimah said this, and Makhul said this, the majority of those are not ikhtilaf, they are not real disagreements. They are just one person focusing on one element instead of the other. That's from one side. On the other side, we read, or the other thing we did is to read Tafsir al-Sa'di to give us a summary idea of the stronger or one of the strong opinions. And again, it's not all right, but it just gives you an idea of something you can hold on to. Okay, at the moment, I'm holding on to the idea that Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim means this. Alhamdulillahir Rabbil Alameen means this. And when I see all of the different opinions of Ibn Kathir, unless I see what really convinces me and really you know like shows to me that I had made a mistake then I have my you know I have someone who's told me this is right and this is wrong and this methodology you will need in every part of studying Islam in aqidah in fiqh especially when we study fiqh as we're going to do in one of the coming terms you don't start studying fiqh by studying the ikhtilaf between the Malikiyah, the Shafi'iyah, the Hanabila, Hanafiyah. Because if you did that, you would not be left with any religion. You would be left just in complete and total confusion. But what you start doing is, first of all, when you're quite small or when you're a very, very beginner's level, your teacher just tells you, this is correct, this is incorrect. No dalil, no evidence, just tells you, you pray like this. 
Then you study the dalil for what your teacher said. Your teacher said you pray like this because the Prophet said this. Then you study within the madhab, just as a curriculum, not because you have to follow a madhab, but within the curriculum. You study the madhab as a curriculum without disagreement. Then you study the madhab with disagreement. Then you study the disagreement between the different madhahib. And by doing this, you come to a conclusion of being able to handle the advanced books that contain so much disagreement. And that's why we said that Ibn Kathir is not an easy book to study. It's a beautiful book and it contains extremely important benefits. But it's a book that requires you to be a real talib ilm, a real student of knowledge to be able to approach it and understand it and go through it. Because it contains complex arguments, it contains multiple different areas of disagreement, it contains narrations which can be authentic or inauthentic. And so you don't want to end up, you know, drowning in all of those opinions. So you start by understanding that most of those opinions are not actually contradictory. And then you move on to understanding one well-known scholar's opinion regarding these ayat that is well, well thought of, well studied, you know, praised by the scholars. And then from there, you go into these differences. And Ibn Kathir is not even that detailed in differences of opinion. Ibn Kathir, I would consider it to be a medium level book in terms of differences of opinion. There are books that are much, much more complicated even than Ibn Kathir. Ibn Kathir does not go into a great deal of detail in many things. The scholars considered his tafsir to be quite summarized, even though he might take 10 or 15 pages to go through Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. They considered it to be quite summarized. So you build your tolerance to this and you deal with it slowly. And from this is an important lesson, and it's one of the most important lessons of today, that you can't jump into books left, right and center. And wherever you feel like it, let me just pick up a book from the shelf and read it. You need to have taken things very slowly in small and easy stages. But since Ibn Kathir is such a famous book and since it is well translated, then it makes sense for us to, talk, to just dip our toes into it over the next couple of weeks. The summary of Ibn Kathir, of course, is easier than the full tafsir. What we're doing here is the full tafsir. The summary is a little easier. But bear in mind that the summary is subject to one problem. And that is that the summary is an opinion of the one who summarized it. So you have to bear in mind, it's pretty unfair to quote an opinion of Ibn Kathir from a summary. Because the fact that, that summer, the one who summarized it chose a particular opinion over another indicates to you that they themselves are picking the parts they believe to be valuable from Ibn Kathir. And that's useful because they themselves are often scholars with great reputations in, in the science of tafsir, so that's useful for you. But it kind of almost brings you back to Al-Imam Al-Sa'di, not quite, but it almost brings you back to a simple tafsir again. Because you've got somebody who's going through and saying, I'm not going to say that, I'm not going to say that, I'm not going to say that. I'm not doing that here. What I'm doing is I'm missing parts that we don't have time for. But I'm reading you as much as I can the whole 
part of the tafsir as much as I can without skipping any bits out but I'm just skipping things that we don't because we just to give you a flavor of the whole surah inshallah so he says alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen he said all of the seven qurra so he's going to talk about the qiraat now something you find in Ibn Kathir he's going to talk to you about the qiraat all of the seven qurra put a dhamma on the dal in alhamdulillah are there only seven qurra what did we say about that we said there are more than seven does that indicate that there might be some that didn't let's see what ibn kathir says he said all of the seven put a dhamma on the dal in alhamdulillah meaning that it is mubtada and khabar and it is a subject and a predicate now that might sound if you studied arabic that will make sense if you haven't probably even in english that will not make sense but if you studied english grammar meaning a subject and a predicate alhamdulillah all praises for allah and it is narrated from sufyan ibn uyayna and another uruba ibn al-ajjaj that they said alhamdulillah alhamdulillah based on the fact that there is a verb missing from the beginning so if you say alhamdulillah there is no verb missing from the beginning it's all praise it's for allah it's just a simple sentence with a subject predicate it's, it's a subject predicate simple non-verbal sentence no issues at all if you say alhamdulillah now you have to explain why you put a fatha there and the explanation would be that there is a verb missing And he goes into another qira'ah. Uh, I mean, if there's a verb missing, perhaps it would be something like, I give all praise to Allah, or I say that all praise is for Allah, or I affirm, I bear witness that all praise is for Allah, something like that. And there is another qira'ah, uh, which he mentions. <coughs> And then he says about this qira'ah He says It has supporting narrations However it is shath And this, this qira'ah that I haven't mentioned to you He says to you That this third one that he mentions It is shath What did we say shath is? It's not compliant with the normal rules of Arabic grammar or it doesn't match the Mus'haf of Uthman and so on. It doesn't fulfill the conditions of a Qira'ah to be authentic so it is Shad. And it's narrated from Al-Hasan ibn Zayd ibn Ali that he read Al-Hamdi Lillah. Al-Hamdi Lillah. Alhamdulillah. The third one was Alhamdulillahu, I believe. The third one was 
or something similar to that. And the fourth one, Alhamdulillah. These are all narrations which don't match, or most of them don't match. Alhamdulillah, that's that fine. You have a you have a point for it. The others, then it becomes different. If it is Alhamdulillah, then it would appear to be an example of the first word following the grammar of the of the second, something like that. So he gives you some information about the qiraat, not just the well-known qiraat, but he also gives you the qiraat al-shadha, the rare qiraat, the ones that are not commonly known and not commonly recited and are not considered to be part of the Qur'an. He said, and Abu Ja'far ibn Jarir rahimahullah said that the meaning of Alhamdulillah is a shukr lillahi khalisan duna sa'ira ma yu'badu min dunih. He said it means to offer thanks to Allah alone instead of everything which is worshipped besides Him. It is to offer thanks to Allah alone instead of everything that is worshipped besides Him. And everything which he has created, and instead of everything which he has created. Because of the blessings which he has given to his servants from the blessings that cannot be counted by a number, cannot be represented by a number. And that no one but Allah is able to count them. The blessings of Allah. In making tools available for his obedience and allowing the limbs of those people who are required to follow Islam to perform his obligations and that which he has provided for them in their dunya of provision and he has nourished them with the pleasures of life despite the fact that they did not deserve those pleasures to be given to them along with what he informed them of i.e. revealed to the prophets and the messengers and that which he called them to from the causes which will lead them to eternal life in paradise with a blessing or with blessings that will never end. So to our Lord is praise for all of that in the beginning and the end. He says, and Ibn Jarir rahimahullah said, so he's mentioning two different opinions from Ibn Jarir Tabari. All of these are narrated in Tafsir al-Tabari. Alhamdulillah is praising Allah with the praise that he praised himself with. He's praising Allah with the praise that he praised himself with. And through that which Allah commanded his servants 
to praise him with as though he said say alhamdulillah as though he is saying to them say alhamdulillah and it has been said that it is a statement that that the statement of the person when they say alhamdulillah is to praise him with all of his perfect names and his lofty attributes it is said ibn jari says it is said that it is to praise him with all of his names and his lofty attributes and when he said ashukr lillah or when it is said ashukr lillah thanks to allah this is praise for him for his blessings and his support that he has given so it's as if he is saying it's as if he is saying that the difference between alhamd and ashukr is that ashukr is specific to the blessings and alhamd is general for all things and ashukr is specific to the blessings that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you and ibn abbas said alhamdulillah is the statement of every grateful person and if a person wishes to be grateful then they must say alhamdulillah and al-qurtubi uses evidence for the correctness of somebody saying alhamdulillah uses as a correctness of somebody saying alhamdulillah in gratitude and alhamdulillah shukra alhamdulillah out of out of gratitude However, that which Ibn Jarir said, and he now Ibn Kathir he is making, and he naqt, he's going to make a criticism of what Ibn Jarir said. It has some question in it, fihi nadar, it has some, some doubt in it. Because it is clear, it has become famous from many of the scholars of the later generations that alhamd, it is to praise Allah by his attributes those which are which only uh, are only relating to him and those which have an effect on others and as for gratitude gratitude is only in response to something that you are given and hamd is with the heart and with the tongue and with the limbs so here he goes on to is alhamd the same as a shukr and he comes and he says what when ibn jarir indicated that it's okay to say alhamdulillahi shukra meaning that the meaning of alhamd is a shukr he said this has some issue in it this has some issue in it because it's clear that a shukr is only in response to gratitude is in response to something you're given you say i'm grateful you don't say i'm grateful when someone hasn't given you anything I'm grateful. Whereas alhamd is not restricted to whether you have been given or you haven't 
being given. And then he mentions a chapter on the different statements of the scholars regarding the early generations regarding Alhamd. And that takes a significant number of pages, three or four pages, where he talks about the different statements of the scholars regarding Alhamd. So he narrates from the early generations what they said about the word Alhamd. He then comes on to Rabbil Alameen. And he says, and so again, you can distinguish that Ibn Kathir really, you can divide it into two in some ways. Those things which Ibn Kathir himself is saying, and those things which he is narrating. The ones which he is narrating are harder than the ones where he himself says it. Like, so when I quoted you the initial explanation of Alhamd, it was easier than when he started to go into what somebody said and what somebody else said and what somebody else said. So the statements of Ibn Kathir himself are somewhat easier to understand than the statements where he narrates from other people. Especially because you have to read it two or three times to be able to understand which bits Ibn Kathir actually agrees with and which bits he doesn't agree with. He may mention a beautiful statement and you're like, wow, that's amazing, and then say this statement is not correct. So you have to be careful about that. So listen to what Ibn Kathir himself says about Rabbil Alameen and then listen again at how he then expands that out to what other people said about Rabbil Alameen. He says, Al-Rabb is al-Malik al-Mutasarrif. He is the one who owns everything and the one who controls everything. And it is used linguistically, meaning not necessarily for Allah, but linguistically, to refer to As-Sayyid, the, the master, the one in charge. And upon the one who is Al-Mutasarrif Lil-Islah, the one who is taking actions or doing things in order to bring about rectification. And all of these are correct to say about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he's saying that this is linguistically, we say Ar-Rabb is a Sayyid. And that is why we say Rabbul Usra. Until this day, you call the person who is head of the family Rabb al-Usra. Because it's permissible to use the word Rabb for someone if it is attached to something else. Like Lord of the manor, Lord of the house, Lord of the family. But it's not permissible to say to somebody, Lord. So until now, we still say that the person in charge of the family, the head of the household, is Rabbul Usra. And what do we mean by that? We mean Sayyid al-Usra. That he is the master or the one in charge of the household. He is Sayyid al-Usra. And he said, using this as a Sayyid for Allah is valid. Because Allah is a Sayyid. And therefore the meaning of Rabb, meaning Sayyid in the, in linguistically, is valid for Allah. So this is giving you a methodology regarding the names of Allah. So the name which comes to mind when you say Ar-Rabb is Al-Malik Al-Mutasarrif, the one who is the owner and the one who has the authority to do what they want. And that applies to Allah. Linguistically, we also say that Ar-Rabb is a Sayyid, the master or the, the one in charge. And that is valid to say for Allah because a Sayyid is a valid 
thing to say about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah is the master, the one in control. And the one who goes about what they do, who does what they do in order to bring about rectification. And that is true for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because Allah Azza wa Jal, all of His actions have a wisdom in them which will bring about good. And that is why we say to about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, وَالشَّرُّ لَيْسَ إِلَيْكَ Evil is not attributed to you. Because even though Allah creates evil, every single evil that He creates is for a purpose of achieving some good. Even if that good is simply to know the difference between truth and falsehood. But every single thing that Allah does is intended to bring about a good or a piece, something which is just or something which is true and valid. He says, Ibn Kathir, and it's not right to use or it's not allowed to use a rub for other than Allah except when you say with idafa, yani, as the Lord of, the Lord of, in which case you can say the Lord of the house, the Lord of this, the Lord of that. But as for saying the Lord or Lord, this is only said for Allah Azza wa Jal. And it is said that Ar-Rabb is Ismullah Al-A'zam. And this is another opinion. It is said that Ar-Rabb is the greatest name of Allah. As for Al-A'lamin, it is the plural of Alam. The plural of Alam, which means world. And it refers to everything which exists except Allah Azza wa Jal. And the word alam itself is a plural. There is no singular for it. And he says the different worlds, he talks about the different worlds of all the different categories of creation, like the world of the heavens and the world of the sea and the land. And every generation and every century that goes by is known as a, a world, an alam. And every generation that goes by and every century that goes by is a separate alam. Like when we talk about the world today or the world of our generation or the world in our time. So he mentions two. So it's an extension. And Imam Sa'di, he just said, the world's everything besides Allah. Ibn Kathir, he gives you a little bit of extra information. He says the world of the heavens, the world of the, the land, the world of the sea, the world of the centuries that go by, and the different worlds of the generations that pass by. Then he narrates again with a chain of narration from Bishr, Amara, from Abi Rawq, from Al-Tahak, from Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Alhamdulillah, all praises for Allah, the one who He created everything in the heavens and the earth. 
what is in them and what is between them what we know and what we do not know so he's giving you a narration from Ibn Abbas to give you some evidence for what he said he said and in the narration of Sa'id ibn Jubayr and Ikrimah from Ibn Abbas Lord of the Jinn and the Men that Ibn Abbas said Lord of the Jinn and the Men and likewise said Sa'id ibn Jubayr and Mujahid and Ibn Juraj and it is narrated something similar from Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhumah And Ibn Abi Hatim said, with a chain that is not reliable. Again, Ibn Kathir is going to give you the, the ins and outs of the chain of what is valid and what isn't valid. So he's going to say, Ibn Abi Hatim said, but with a chain that should not be relied upon. And then he goes on to talk about, uh, they are Al-Alameen, Al-Jinn and uh, Al-Ins and he goes on to narrate another narration from Al-Farra and from Abu Ubaid two scholars of Tafsir that the Alam refers to those things which understand meaning mankind and the jinn the angels and the devils and you don't say for the animals alam and it seems like ibn kathir does not support this narration because the one that he explained is everything in the heavens and the earth besides allah but he's now quoting other opinions and you can feel that he doesn't support this narration. He started it by saying this is narrated by a chain that is not reliable. And he mentioned some of the people who said this. So you get the feeling that it's not... And the first one that he mentioned here was the, the one that... Because he mentioned it from his own speech. He didn't bring a quote. And then he brought the quote of Ibn Abbas to support it. Then later on he mentions other opinions and you feel like the ones in the middle and he doesn't give as much weight to them. And that is the opinion that Al-Alameen refers to the jinn and the angels and mankind and not to the animals. But you feel that Ibn Kathir feels more generally than that because he says himself in his own speech it refers to everything besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then he mentions some opinions about how many worlds there are, that supposedly there are 13 worlds or 14 worlds, or meaning the worlds of different, whether it's the sea and the land and so on. But again, these narrations are like he says, this is a statement which is gharib. After he mentions the number of alam, and there's 14 or 13, he says, وَهَذَا كَلَامٌ غَرِيبٌ this is a strange statement. You cannot say this without an authentic dalil. So he will mention opinions from some of the scholars of tafsir that are extremely weak. 
And then in conclusion, he will say, this is a strange statement. And you cannot say something like this without having a dalil. You cannot say there are 13 worlds without having a dalil and evidence that, they, that this exists. I'm going to move on now. Uh, Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, he already spoke about, but let's just see what he, he adds to it. He says, we have already mentioned the meaning of Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim in the topic of the Basmala, and there's no need to repeat it here. That's what Ibn Kathir says. Then he says, Al-Qurtubi said, that Allah described himself with Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim after saying Rabbil Alameen as though he is joining between At-Targheeb Wa-Targheeb between encouragement and between making you fearful of him like when he said Nabi Ibadi Inform my servants that I am the most merciful or that I am the most forgiving, the most merciful and that my punishment is the severe punishment. So why did he add this statement of Al-Qurtubi here? Because when he spoke about Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim in Bismillah he wasn't speaking about the relation between Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim and between Rabbil Alameen. Now, the only thing he has left to add is the link between the two, because that's what he hasn't mentioned. And he mentions that it is from the point of at targhib or tarheeb, meaning that Rabbil Alameen makes you fearful. And that Ar Rahman Ar Rahim makes you hopeful, makes you encouraged. And in reality, Rabbul Alameen is more general than just fear. And Rabbul Alameen is more comprehensive. It contains fear, it contains love, it contains hope. But if you were to say between Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim and Maliki Yawmuddin, this would be more obvious. That Maliki Yawmuddin is intended to put fear and the Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim is intended to give hope. But yes, even from Rabbul Alameen, it does certainly give you an element of fear as well as an element of hope. He said that Al-Qurtubi said, Ar-Rabb contains fear and he makes you scared and Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim contains encouragement. And in Sahih Muslim from Abi Hurairah, the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, if the believer knew what Allah had prepared of punishment, nobody would ever hope of entering Jannah. And if the kafir knew what Allah had of mercy, he, nobody would ever have despaired of his mercy. And the hadith is in Sahih Muslim. So he mentions this opinion. Then he goes on to say, Maliki Yawmuddin. Some of the reciters said Malik and others said Malik. And both are sahih, mutawatir, 
in the seven qiraat. So he's going to say to you that Malik and Malik are both very famous among the seven qiraat. Bear in mind as a point of benefit that the benefit that the seven qiraat themselves have variations in them. So it's not the case that, for example, Hafs and Asim is always read the same way. Sometimes there is more than one way of reading Hafs and Asim depending on the student who narrates from Hafs. One of the ways, if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while since I did this, but there is a style of Hafs of stopping at every Sukun after which there is Hamz, Hamza. So for example saying, Stopping briefly without taking a breath. For example. And even though this is more famous from the likes of Khalaf and Hamza and others, it also exists within a narration of Hafs from another student other than the, the main student that we recite from, that we, the normal narration of Hafs that we recite from. So even within the scholars, there is a disagreement. But it is well established within the seven major styles of recitation, the recitation of Malik and the recitation of Malik. And then he goes on, to talk about some other more complex elements of uh, recitation um, and that some people read other ways which are much more rare than that. So the well-known are Malik and Malik. And after that, there are some which are much less well-known than that. One is putting a sukoon on the lamb. So that would be like Malik uh, and reading like almost a ya after the kaf so malki malki yawmiddin and other ones uh, which he mentions malak uh, yawmiddin and something uh, like allah malaka yawmiddin yani allah is the one who owns as in a verb rather than a name malaka yawmiddin and others but these are he said this one is this last one malaka Malaka Yawmaddin, he said this is Wahada Shadun Gharibun Jiddan. This is extremely, extremely strange. Like that nobody from the major scholars of recitation was ever known to say Malaka Yawmaddin. However, it's narrated from as Shad, I mean, it's not part of the Quran, not part of the main part of the Quran, but it's narrated from some of the, the Quran. So you see that Ibn Kathir is going to go out into the different branches of Qira'ah, starting with the well-known and moving on to the very, until he finishes with the strangest of the strange. He then mentions 
after he's finished with the strange uh, reports he goes on to talk about where the name Al-Malik or Al-Malik is taken from and he mentions regarding this two opinions one that it is taken from Al-Milk and one that it is taken from Al-Mulk To the best of my knowledge, if I can explain this in a good way in English, uh, that the if it is taken from uh, al-milk, then it means ownership. And from malaka yamliku milken. Like the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, inna nahnu narithu al-ard. We will inherit the earth and everything that is in it, and to us you will be returned. And it is also, he says, also taken from Al Mulk, which is dominion. As Allah said, To who does the dominion belong today? And that all of it is within the kingdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So one emphasis, and one of them emphasizes ownership, and one of them emphasizes that it is within the kingdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah has the control and the, and the tasarruf, He can do what He wants with it. And that everything will return back to Him. So it's within His kingdom. And one of them emphasizes ownership, that Allah owns it. He says, and specifying Al-Mulk, specifying that Allah is Malik on the Yawm al-Deen, yani the day of reckoning, does not negate the fact that He is Malik of everything else. And this is something As-Sa'di also mentioned. This is something As-Sa'di also mentioned, that just because He is the Malik of Yawm al-Deen does not mean he is not the Malik of every other day. Because, and he gives an evidence of in Kathir, he says, because it has already been mentioned that he is Rabbul Alameen. And if it's mentioned that he is Rabbul Alameen, if it's been mentioned that he is Rabbul Alameen, therefore, it must mean that he is the Malik of every single day. Because that is the only way he can be Rabbul Alameen. If he is the owner and he has the command and the dominion on every single day. And therefore this indicates to us that the statement Maliki Yawmuddin, it does not mean that Allah is not the Malik of every other day. But it is specifying that specific day. Because on that day, nobody will claim ownership of anything. And nobody will speak except with his permission. So look, Al-Milk and Al-Mulk, both he's talking about. That in terms of Al-Milk, nobody will claim that I own anything on that day. And in terms of Al-Mulk, like Allah Azza wa Jal being the sovereign or the, the, like the king, 
in the one in complete control, nobody will speak without his permission on that day. As Allah said, لا يتكلمون إلا من أذن له الرحمن وقال صوابا. Nobody will speak except the one who is given permission by Ar-Rahman. And Allah said, وَخَشَعَتِ الْأَصْوَاتُ لِلْرَحْمَانِ فَلَا تَسْمَعُ إِلَّا هَمْسًا That the voices will be silenced or will be lowered for Ar-Rahman. And the statement of Allah يَوْمَ يَأْتِ لَا تَكَلَّمَ نَفْسٌ إِلَّا بِإِذْنِهِ On the day that will come in which Nobody will speak except with his permission. And Al-Dahak narrated from Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma, Maliki Yawmiddin, that he said, No one will own anything on that day. Or, he said, nobody will have any decision or any ruling Nobody will judge anything for anyone on that day except him. As they used to do in the dunya, as they used to either judge or as they used to own in the dunya. He said, and Yawmuddin, it is the day of accounting for creation. And it is Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Allah will judge them, i.e. Ad-Deen, Allah will judge them by their actions, if they are good, then the, the, the outcome will be good. And if the actions are evil, then the outcome will be evil. Except for the one who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mercy upon. And in this, others from the Sahaba and the Tabi'een said, and it is, Ibn Kathir says, It's obvious, and this is clear, as to why Allah said, Because ad-deen is judgment in fairness and justice and therefore it is the day in which Allah will judge the creation if they have done good they will get good if they have done bad they will get bad unless Allah forgives them if they've done good they will get good if they've done bad they will get bad unless Allah forgives them so again you have the right aqidah in there this is a quote from Ibn Abbas which clearly shows to you that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can forgive the sinful as opposed to the opinion of the Khawarij and the Mu'tazila and others who said that there is no forgiveness for the one who does the major sins uh, if they die upon doing them they die as a non-Muslim this is a refutation of this since he says وَإِن شَرًّا فَشَرْ إِلَّا مَنْ عَفَاً if he has done evil, then he will get evil except the one who Allah overlooks the evil that he did. And Ibn Jarir narrated from some of them, some of them and some of the earlier generations, that the tafsir of Maliki Yawmiddin is that he is the one who is able to establish Yawmiddin. Then Ibn Jarir goes on to say that this is weak. And he began to say that this is, that these, that these narrations that he, that Ibn Jarir narrates is, are, are not strong. This brings us to another thing that we read in uh, tafsir of, or in the principles of tafsir 
Shaykh Islam Taala. When he explained the different ways that you can prefer one opinion over the other. And that when the opinions are based on narrations, you can prefer one opinion over the other by the authenticity of the narrations. So we could say, Maliki Yawmiddin means to establish the one who is able to establish the Day of Judgment. However, these narrations, as Ibn Jarir said, are weak. And Ibn Jarir himself said that these narrations I have mentioned are, are weak. Then Ibn Kathir says, and this will also help you in the principles you read from Ibn Taymiyyah, the apparent, or apparently what, or he's saying what I can see apparently, is that there is no contradiction between this statement and the one that came before. So Ibn Kathir is saying, why did Ibn Kathir even mention an opinion that Ibn Jarir said is weak? He mentioned it to say to you that personally, I don't think that there is any contradiction between these two and there's no reason why you can't take both of them together. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the sovereign of that day and the only one who will own anything on that day and also the only one who is able to establish that day. And that none of these actually contradict. And that everyone who said one of these opinions did not negate the other opinion. And this is important. So the people who said that Allah is the one able to establish the Day of Judgment, they did not say that Allah is not the owner of the Day of Judgment. They said He is the owner of the Day of Judgment and He is able to establish it. And those who said that He is the owner did not say that He is not able to establish it. So He's showing you this principle, the application of this principle that we learned in the principles of tafsir, that a lot of tafsir from the early generations is not contradictory. And in fact, when you look at it, you see that they are just focusing on one element and they are focusing on one element, but the, the two are not contradictory. So there is no need to go to Ibn Jarir and say, this narration might be weaker than this narration and this one might be more authentic. Because in the first place, there is no contradiction between these two opinions. But then he says, yeah, I'll keep going, then he says, however, the context of the ayah is stronger in evidencing the first opinion than the second. This is the benefit here. He said there's no contradiction between them, but just like Ibn Taymiyyah said, just because there's no contradiction, it doesn't mean that you can't prefer one of them over the other based on the context. So one of them focuses the camera on one element and one of them focuses on the other element. But in reality, one of them is more deserving of focus than the other. Even though both are true and both are valid, but still one of them has more reason to focus on it than the other one. So the context of Surah Al-Fatiha indicates more towards the concept of Allah being the owner of the day of resurrection rather than Allah being the only one who can establish the day of resurrection even though both are true 
it's more befitting to focus on Allah being the owner and the sovereign of the day of recompense than it is for Allah to, to focus on Allah being the only one who can establish the day of recompense. Because if you look at the context, that is what goes with the hope and the fear and the context of the ayat, the Rabb, Rabbul Alameen, and then specifically mentioning Maliki Yawmiddin. And the context helps, also the context is clearer in focusing upon that aspect rather than that aspect. So there's another point, point that we have to bear in mind that even though we may say these two opinions are not contradictory, still one of them may be more deserving of focus than the other. And that is something that Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah also mentioned. And he mentions two ayat supporting each opinion. The first one, Al-Mulku Yawma Rahman. True ownership or true sovereignty on that day will be for Ar-Rahman. That's for the first opinion. And the second one, On the day he will say be and it is. I on the day when he will be the one to establish the day of judgment. So he's saying that there are two ayat, both of which, one of which supports one opinion and one of which supports the other, showing that they're both valid. However, we put our focus more upon the first one because this is more in line with the context of the surah. He said, and Al-Malik in reality, he is Allah Azza wa Jal, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, huwa Allahu alladhi la ilaha illahu Al-Malik. Al-Quddus al-Salam. And in, the, and in Bukhari, a Muslim from Abu Hurairah radiallahu an, that the worst of names in the sight of Allah is a man who is called Malik al-Amlak or similarly Malik al-Mulk when there is no Malik except Allah Azza wa Jal. And also in the Sahihain from Abu Hurairah, the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, Allah will grasp the earth and roll up the heavens in his right hand. Then he will say, I am Al-Malik, I am the sovereign. Where are the kings of the earth? Where are the tyrants? Where are the boastful? And in the Quran, لِمَنِ الْمُلْكُ الْيَوْمِ لِلَّهِ الْوَاحِدِ الْقَهَارِ So as for others being called king in the dunya, then this is not that they are the true, they are truly and the true sovereign who is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But this is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given it to them. Like in the ayah, إِنَّ اللَّهَ قَدْ بَعَثَ لَكُمْ طَالُوتَ مَلِكًا Allah has established for you Talut as a king. Not as the king who is the sovereign of all, but as someone who has been given their kingdom by Allah. 
subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then he establishes in the Sahihain the use of the word Malik for other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, i.e. that it's not haram for someone to call themselves a king. So he wants to establish that it's not haram for someone to call themselves a king. Rather, Allah Azza wa Jal called people in the Quran kings. And in the Sahihain, uh, the example of the ones who are Al Muluk al Usra. So the, there are some examples he's giving of the use of the word kings in the Quran and in Sahih al-Bukhari and Muslim. But he explains that this is not, they are not truly any sovereign, but their sovereignty is given to them by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in a limited, in a limited sense. He says, and ad-deen is al-jaza' wal-hisab. Ad-deen, it is reward and accounting. As Allah said, On that day, Allah will give them their true recompense. And He said, That we are the ones who will take them to account and we are the ones who will reward them. And in the hadith, Al-Kayis mandana nafsahu wa amila lima ba'd al-mawt That the intelligent person is the one who takes himself to account, in idana, from deen, takes himself to account and acts upon, uh, and acts, does actions for what will come in the hereafter. And he says, meaning taking himself to account. As Umar radiallahu anhu said, take yourself to account before you are taken to account and weigh your deeds before they are weighed for you. And prepare for the great, and he's still from the statement of Umar, and prepare for the great ard when your deeds will be presented to you, the great presentation of deeds when they are presented to, when they are presented in front of the one who does not or is not, nothing is hidden from your actions. On the day that you, your deeds will be presented, nothing, not even the smallest thing will be hidden from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Quickly we'll go on to We said we don't expect like, we'll be able to finish too much because subhanAllah the amount of content is considerable but we just want to get ideas we just want to link sort of okay I get now how Ibn Kathir works I understand what he does I understand the benefits I understand uh, why he uses certain things why he brings in certain things I understand that he's very fond of quoting a hadith and that's why Ibn Kathir is considered to be a tafsir bil ma'thur tafsir by the Quran and the Sunnah and he, that's, that's what Ibn Kathir is known for. He's not known for a tafsir bil ra'i, tafsir by his mind, just what he thinks of it, that he writes it down, or tafsir by some other means. And his thing is a tafsir bil ma'thur, tafsir by what is narrated, by narrations, 
So it's full of narrations telling you what did someone say, what did someone say, what did someone say, who said this, who do I prefer, why do we prefer one over the other. He said, The seven reciters and the majority read a shedda on iyaka. Any doubling, they are iyaka. And Amr ibn Fayyid read it along with a, uh, a kasra, in al kasra. Any iyak, without iyak, iyak. He said, and this recitation is shadza, and it's not acceptable, and it's not within the main body of the Quran, and it is marduda, it is rejected. Because iya is the light of the sun. Any iya, so when you read iyak, is the light of the sun, and not iyaka, which is you. And some of them read, or some of them read it, Ayyaka, Ayyaka na'budu, wa Ayyaka nasta'in, with a fatha at the beginning. And some of them read, Ayyaka with a ha instead of a hamza. Ayyaka instead of a, a hamza, Ayyaka where the ha indicates the hamza because in certain elements of arabic it is allowed to replace a hamza with a ha and he gives a line of poetry to prove that but these are not qiraat which are well known the well-known qiraat all of them are iyaka iyaka with a hamza and a shedda on the ya however there are some rejected ones there are some rejected ones including iyak and likewise there are some Ones that are rare without being rejected. I mean, they're just considered to be rare um, and not part of the main body of the, you know, they're, they're considered to be shad. They are not part of the main body of the Quran, uh, including hayyaka, hayyaka na'budu wa hayyaka nasta'in. Like he mentions a line of poetry in which the poet says, فَهَيَّاكَ وَالْأَمْرَ فَهَيَّاكَ وَالْأَمْرَ الَّذِي انتراحبت. And he, So he mentions that the poet says, instead of saying إِيَّاكَ, he said هَيَّاكَ. So it's, linguistically it's okay, but it doesn't match the, it doesn't match the Mus'haf of Uthman, uh, and therefore it is شَاذ. He said, النَّسْتَعِينَ By putting a fatha on the noon, at the beginning of the word. In the recitation of everyone except for Yahya and Al-A'mash. And both of them read it with a kasra, meaning Nista'in. And it is the Arabic of Bani Asad and Rabi'ah and Bani Tamim. Any Bani Asad and Rabi'ah and Bani Tamim read Nista'in and not and that was their language, that was their Arabic. That's how they used to speak Arabic. It's a totally valid way of speaking Arabic. That's how they used to speak Arabic in their, uh, what do you want to call it, branch of the Arabic language. I don't think you can call it an accent. It's more like a, 
a sub-branch of the Arabic language. However, the majority of the reciters read it as Nesta'in. And there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with the Kesra, and it's not, it's not wrong. It's valid as a, as a branch of Arabic that is narrated from three tribes, Bani Asad and Rabi'ah and Bani Tamim, that their Arabic was to say Nista'in and not Nesta'in. He said, Ibadah in language, the word Ibadah or the word worship in the Arabic language, it comes from Adhullah, it comes from lowering yourself or humbling yourself. As you say, Tariqun Mu'abbad. This road is Mu'abbad. And this road is uh, lowly. Uh, the low road, something like that. The lowly road or the low road. And lowering yourself. And you see, you say, Ba'irun Mu'abbad. This camel is Mu'abbad, meaning it has been completely under, it's, it's a submissive camel. A submissive camel, so you call it Ba'irun Mu'abbad. Ay Mudallal. And in the Sharia, it is an expression for everything which gathers together the perfection of love and submissiveness and fear. And every action which indicates love, submissiveness, and fear is an act of worship. He said, And iyaka, the object of the sentence, because iyaka here is the object of the sentence, comes, is put before for two reasons. And it is put before and it's repeated for two reasons. So he gives two reasons why iyaka. First of all, why does Iyaka come first? First of all, why does Iyaka come first? And why is Iyaka repeated? Why is it not Na'buduka wa nasta'inuk? And why is it not Iyaka na'budu wa nasta'in? Why say Iyaka na'bud? Wa Iyaka nasta'in? Why repeat those two? He says, because of the importance of them, and because of the importance of it only being for Allah, and because of al-hasr, because it's only for Allah. Meaning, لا نعبد إلا إياك We only worship you. ولا نتوكل إلا عليك And we only put our trust in you. And this is the perfection of obedience to Allah. And everything in the religion returns to these two meanings. إياك نعبد وإياك نستعين and this is as some of the early generations said, Al-Fatiha is the secret of the Qur'an. And Al-Fatiha is the sir here, maybe not the secret, sir here, it almost means like the whole of the Qur'an. Like it, it's the word sir, it means secret, but here, sir al-Qur'an, like, the, like the, the kind of the key, the summary, like everything that the Qur'an contains, the, the, the sort of the... If you were to summarize down the Quran to like a meaning, say this is like the, the, the secret meaning, the meaning that is all the way through the Quran, the essence of the Quran. Then the essence of the Quran is Surah Al-Fatiha. And the essence of Surah Al-Fatiha is Iyaka na'budu wa Iyaka nasta'in. 
And the, the secret of the Quran is Surah Al-Fatiha. And the secret of Surah Al-Fatiha is in other words, everything which is summarized by the whole Quran can be summarized in The whole of the Quran can be summarized in this. The first statement is is to declare yourself to be free of making A partner with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in any way. And the second is to make yourself free from any ability to change anything or any power except through Allah and submitting all of your affairs to Allah Azza wa And this meaning is found in more than one ayah of the Quran as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, فَعْبُدْهُ وَتَوَكَّلْ عَلَيْهِ Worship him and put your trust in him. And Allah said, Say, He is our Rahman, we have believed in Him, and upon Him we have trusted. He said, and the fact that the statement or the, the, uh, the, 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 the ayat of the Quran have moved from talking about the third person into talking, addressing somebody in the second person. So it's previously Allah has been speaking in the third person, praises to Allah, not praises to me or we praise you. But Allah has been speaking in the, in the third person. Praise is to Allah. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of the worlds. He is the most merciful, the bestower of mercy. He is the master of the earth. You alone we worship. Okay, now we have a change. This is part of Balagh. So Ibn Kathir, even though he doesn't do a lot of balagh in his tafsir, a lot of it, talk about eloquence, he's going to highlight why is it that we suddenly change from talking in the third person to suddenly talking in the second person. To going from he, 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 to you, you, you. So what does he say? He says, this is very appropriate. Because when you have praised Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is though you have become nearer to Him. And it is though you are present in front of Him. So the praise of Allah has got you nearer to Him to the point where you can then say directly to Him, And it is as though He's giving, He's not saying this happening, says as though, as though you have they come nearer and nearer until you are present in front of him and then you say to him, Like a kind of tawassul. And for this reason he said, And in this there is an evidence that the beginning of Surah Al-Fatiha is informing about Allah and praising himself. and praising his beautiful lofty attributes and guiding the servants to praise him with these things and for this reason 
it is not valid or the prayer of the person who does not say this is not valid while he is able to do it as it is found in the Sahihain from Ubadah ibn al-Samit that the Prophet said there is no prayer there is no prayer for the one who does not say and then he mentions the hadith in Sahih Muslim from the hadith of Al-Ala ibn Abdul Rahman Mawla Al-Hurqa or Al-Hurqa from his father from Abu Hurairah the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said Allah the Exalted said the prayer has been divided between me and my servant into two pieces half of it is for me and half of it is for my servant I meaning half of it is dua al-ibadah where you are praising Allah and half of it is you directly asking Allah dua al-masal and for my servant is what he asks. When my servant says, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Allah says, my servant has praised me. And when my servant says, Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, Allah says, my servant has Athna, yani Athna alayhi is very close to praise, but uh, it's a little bit different. Maybe uh, the first one you would say, my, my servant has said Hamd, yani has said Alhamd. And in the second one, my servant has praised me. When he says, Maliki Yawmiddin, Allah says, my servant has glorified me. Then when he says, Allah says, this is between me and between my servant. Meaning, this is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is asking Allah for help. So you are, like, this is between me and my servant. And my servant will have what he asks for, meaning you will have that help from Allah. And when he says, Allah says, This is for my servant, and my servant will have what he is, what he has asked for. And Abd Dahak narrated from Ibn Abbas about the words, the meaning is It is you that we turn to in Tawheed. This is narrated from Ibn Abbas And again, this is a refutation of those people who say that Tawheed was unknown to anyone. The word or the concept of Tawheed was unknown to anyone until any of the recent times. And this is a new thing that you people have invented. Ibn Abbas said about You alone we have Tawheed of you alone we have Tawheed of and you alone we fear and you alone we hope in our Lord nobody else but you you alone we have Tawheed of we don't have Tawheed of anyone else you alone we we declare to be one and you alone we fear and you alone we hope in our Lord nobody else and your help we seek to obey you and to do everything that we, or, to, or, in, or in every single thing. Anyway, two things about you alone we obey, or we, sorry, we ask your help to obey you and we ask your help in everything, in everything else. And Qatada said, so he's begun the narrations, Qatada said, so the first one from Al-Tahak from Ibn Abbas. Qatada said, Allah commands you to make ibadah for him alone. 
and to seek his help in doing all things, all of your things. And the reason Iyaka Na'bud is mentioned before Iyaka Nasta'in is because Ibadah is the main message of the ayah. Worshipping him alone is the main message. It's maqsuda, it's the main message of the ayah. And Iyaka Nasta'in is the means by which you can worship him. So this is a different opinion to the one that Imam Sa'di mentioned here. Although it's not contradictory, is that Iyaka Na'bud is the primary message of the ayah, and Iyaka Nasta'in is the means by which you can achieve Iyaka Na'bud. And you can achieve worshipping Allah by seeking help from Him alone. And that the most importance is given to that which is given preference in the speech. Um, and so Allah begins with the most important and then the next important. So, Iyaka Na'bud and Iyaka Nasta'in. And this is similar to what Imam al Sa'di mentioned. Rahimullah uh, Ta'ala. One more or two or three more points were mentioned. If it is said, what is the meaning of the noon? Why do we say you alone, we worship? Why do we not say Iyaka A'bud? Why do we say we? Why do we not say I? Then even if it is plural, because even if it's plural, the one who is saying it is just one person. And if it is for any ta'zim, any like if it's like because there are there are different reasons why you would say we. You might say we because you're more than one person. Okay, like you and me, but you're just one person saying this, so you're not more than one. So why do you use we? Maybe it's for ta'zim to say how great you are, that me, the great, amazing person, worships you. That's not befitting for this statement. It's not befitting you're lowering yourself before Allah and you're saying the royal we. You know, like we are not amused. You know, like we are not, like you're speaking about yourself with we. He said, this has been answered, that the meaning of this is to say that all of your servants who truly worship you, of which I am one of them, we alone we worship you and we alone we ask for, we ask you, uh, you alone we worship and you alone we, uh, you alone we ask for, for help. So he's saying, it's as though you're saying that all of your true servants, all of your true worshippers, this is what they do. And I am one of those true worshippers. Especially if you're praying in jama'ah or you are the imam, because here you are speaking that the people here gathered together to pray, all of us are worshipping you and all of us are asking for your help. So it's as though you are begging Allah by the fact that there is more than one of you who is doing this. It's not just me. Maybe I'm, you know, a sinful person and so on. It's not just me asking you this, but also the whole of your servants are asking you that they worship you alone and they're asking for your help. So it's as though you're telling about yourself and about your brother believers that they worship Allah with the worship that is that they were created for this purpose uh, 
and that brings about all, or that all good comes about uh, through it. And then he goes on to mention other opinions, which again, you get the opinion that Ibn Kathir doesn't really agree with them completely. Like the one who said it's for ta'zim, it is for honoring yourself. Because when you worship Allah, that is where all honor comes from. They said when you worship Allah, all honor comes from worshiping Allah. So when you worship Allah, it is befitting for you to speak about yourself with honor because you're the one who really deserves honor because you're worshiping Allah. Again, this also... Uh, has it has its its problems with it, and Ibn Kathir goes on himself to mention some of those. We can just finish Iyaka Na'budu Iyakanastings. There's one paragraph left or two. He mentions, Ibn Kathir, he goes on to mention the virtue of being a worshipper of Allah. Because Iyaka Na'bud makes you Abd, and he makes you. Abid, a worshipper, and someone who is an abd, a servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the true sense of the word. And he mentions the virtue of this. In the, when Allah said, Alhamdulillahi anzala ala abdihi kitab. All praises to Allah who sent down upon his servant, his worshipper, Muhammad the book. And when the servant of Allah called upon him and subhanallahi asra bi abadihi laylan so he and he, when Allah wished to speak about the Prophet in the most noble of terms he spoke about him using the word abd servant with regard to the book that was revealed to him and when he gave da'wah to the people and when the isra happened uh, to him in all of these cases Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about the Prophet with the word abd and this tells you the virtue of servitude to Allah of being a true servant of Allah uh, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the statement of Allah Worship your Lord until the moment of certainty, i.e. death, uh, comes to you. He then mentions an incorrect opinion of Ar-Razi in his tafsir. And you know that Ar-Razi was not upon the sunnah. Uh, and he mentions his opinion and then he refutes the opinion. So this is also important to note that Ibn Kathir will quote from the people of Tafsir who are not upon the Sunnah and then refute their opinion. So he quotes from Ar-Razi when Ar-Razi said that servitude is better than prophethood. And he doesn't mean that people are better than prophets, but he means that the state that, that using the word abd is better than using the word Rasul for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he says and this statement is wrong and his evidence for it is weak it has nothing nothing comes out of it even though Ar-Razi did not 
declare it to be weak and did not respond to it. And he, didn't, he himself didn't say it. And some of the Sufis said, uh, and he quotes some of the Sufiya in some of their opinions, any, that with regard to ibadah, that ibadah is achieving good or, or, or keeping punishment away from yourself. And then he goes on to, uh, to talk about or to reply to this. And he said, this statement of theirs is also weak. And he said that, they, that we worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because of his perfect attributes. Uh, and for this reason, the person who prays says, I pray for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even though it is for achieving reward and for uh, or, or And if it was for the mere reason of achieving reward, the prayer would not be valid. And so some of them said, we only pray to receive reward. And Sufiya Ajib, because he mentions this opinion from them. And on the other side from them are those who say, we, we don't pray, we don't care about reward. We only pray for the sake, we do everything for the sake of the love of Allah. So this is wrong and that is wrong. I mean, there are two extremes that are both wrong. One is when you say we only pray for the love of Allah and we don't care about, we don't hope for his reward and we don't fear his punishment. And from them are those who said that the only reason we pray is to get a reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Ibn Kathir tells you that they, what you should be saying is that we pray for the sake of Allah, we hope for his reward and we fear his punishment. And that is the balance between love and hope and fear um, and so on. And he said, others responded to them and said that the fact that worship is for Allah does not mean that we don't hope for reward and we don't wish to be kept away from his punishment. And for this reason, the Arabi, the Bedouin said, I cannot murmur like you murmur. He said to the Prophet I can't murmur like you and Mu'adh murmur. He's a Bedouin, he did not like, you know, that he means the adhkar and he said, I cannot murmur like you murmur and Mu'adh murmurs. But I ask Allah for Jannah and I seek refuge from the hellfire and the Prophet said, it is these two things that we murmur about. So the Bedouin came like as they are very rough and tough and said, you know, I can't understand what you murmur about and what Mu'ad is murmuring about in his salah. But I ask for Jannah and I ask Allah to keep me away from Jahannam. And the Prophet said, it is these two things that we murmur about. So this is an evidence for the middle path. That we neither say that the only reason, you know, prayer is not for Allah, prayer is for reward. It's a one by one exchange, you know, like, I pray, I get reward, that's it. I don't do it for the sake of Allah. And those who said that I don't care about the reward, I don't care about any reward, and I don't fear Allah will ever punish me. But rather the joining between them when we say we pray for Allah, hoping for his reward and fearing for his punishment. And then he said, mustaqim, and that we don't have any more time for. So this is just, Heidi, what, what is the purpose behind this? I want you to understand again. The purpose behind what we've done today 
is to give you experience of Ibn Kathir, his tafsir. The purpose is not to go through everything, but just to give you experience so you know your own level. If you find Ibn Kathir understandable and you feel like you can approach it, include it within the things that you read. If you feel like you struggled to get through that today, even though that's probably down to me, then begin primarily focusing upon the easier tafsir that give you just a one line or two lines or a paragraph and then move up slowly. And the slower you move up, eventually you will get to Ibn Kathir. And then you will find Ibn Kathir to be easy. And then you will get, inshallah ta'ala, to what is beyond Ibn Kathir. From Al-Qurtubi and Al-Tabari and, and many, many other books of tafsir along the way. And then beyond that, to the statements of the Sahaba and the Tabi'een and so on. And you will find that easy if you take it in steps. But you imagine now if we had read that tafsir without having prior read tafsir al-Sa'di, without having prior studied the principles of tafsir, it's not easy to go through. And I saved you from some of the more difficult bits to the best of my ability. But really, it's not an easy thing to go through. And I tell you openly, I openly say to you that when I read tafsir ibn Kathir, I still find myself circling, underlining, putting question marks, going back to the sheikh and saying, sheikh, well, I don't understand what Ibn Kathir said here. I don't understand what Ibn Kathir said here. Is this correct? Is this not correct? Using the muhaqqiq, that is the person who makes commentary to see what he says about Ibn Kathir and what does he say about this narration and that narration. It's not an easy thing to be able to do. So you take it in stages. But I want you to be able to use this book because it is one of the few books that is comprehensively available in English. Generally, this level of book would only be available in Arabic and there are very few comprehensive complicated books available in English very few um, even only it was only very recently that Fath al-Bari was translated in the explanation of Sahih al-Bukhari very very few things that have been translated at that level Ibn Kathir is one of them so you should not ignore it because if you ignore it you're ignoring something which is extremely extremely valuable and there for you to be able to take so you benefit from Ibn Kathir, but you benefit it after you've tied yourself to a simple explanation that you can understand, and then you move on through Ibn Kathir slowly, looking at each opinion. Does Ibn Kathir himself approve it or does he refute it? So sometimes you have to go through and circle something in red and say, and highlight with a little arrow and say, Ibn Kathir just said that this is wahada qawlun gharib. This is not a, not a valid statement. This is a weird statement, and so on. So a lot of careful reading and a lot of checking and a lot of compa comparing and a lot of going back to other books. And with that, you will benefit immensely from Tafsir Ibn Kathir. As we said, as Sheikh Ibn Baz Taala used to say, Ibn Kathir is one of the books that I read from beginning to end and then I start reading it again because of the huge benefit that it contains. So inshallah, I hope that has been understood. We have to go now, because we are already late. Allah is our general's best. One small thing, Ikhwani, uh, I forgot to tell you, and I was supposed to tell you. Today is the last day for submission of the assignment, I believe. I will accept submissions until Monday, but there will be marks taken off for those who don't submit it today.
That's fair. Because if I said to you that I will not accept, some people will say, oh, but, 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 like, what about this? What about this? And I needed and I had this in the camp and all this stuff was going on. That's unfair to the people who worked hard to get it done today because they may turn around and say, well, I submitted it without finishing it because I wanted it done today. So we will take marks off for submitting it up to Monday, but I will not look at the submissions until, until Monday, inshallah ta'ala. So you have until Monday to submit it, but if you submit it after the deadline, uh, which is the 7th, I believe, which is today, uh, then uh, we will deduct some marks because of a late submission, but we'll still accept it. After Monday, will not work. Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Salatu salam ala so today is the last day inshallah ta'ala of module one but the exam for module one as is stated on the website will be next week at the beginning of module two and that's because if we held the exam at the same time as the class there would be two problems number one I'm either forced not to include what we learn in week four in the exam or you have to do instant memorization and revision where you have to do the class and immediately do the exam based on what you did in the class without revising so I think neither of those work very well. So what we've basically decided to do is that the exam will be held at the beginning of module two. Now I'm gonna announce a little bit more about module two later on, but just to tell you inshallah that there will be a few changes. The basic layout to the module will be very similar. We will be focusing on, again, one module of Aqeedah and two modules relating to Usul al-Fiqh and Al-Qawa'id Al-Fiqhiyya uh, which I'm very excited about because they're a very interesting topic for the student it's one of the most I think the most interesting topics for the student because it gives you the tools that the scholars use to be able to extract the halal and the haram from the texts so I think it's extremely important and interesting but one of the things we have committed to doing in term two is slowing down module two and slowing down and that's because when we started this course we originally planned for the course to be four modules and so I had a, a set of material that I wanted to cover in those uh, four modules which required me to squeeze them the content quite a lot uh, however since we now have eight modules and not four uh, this is something that was decided quite late on in the course like quite late before we started so I didn't have time to, to really change the plan we do have more time to spread things out so previously I was going to do usul al-fiqh and some of fiqh al-madahib in one term and now we've decided not to do that. We will focus exclusively on one topic in Aqeedah and one topic or two topics in Usul al-Fiqh, inshallah, uh, 
we'll do this uh, exclusively in, in module two, leaving module three. Now there are a few elements about module two that you'll have to be aware of. Those announcements will probably be made at the end while we wait for everybody to come. But there are a few things to be aware of, inshallah. Uh, firstly, we will be starting immediately, and that is because uh, I have uh, some leave booked as do many people in the summer and if we don't start immediately there is also a chance that we will not be able to complete the module before lots of people start going on on leave inshallah uh, also we'll make an announcement regarding ramadan but at the moment the working plan is that we will have classes in the first two weeks of ramadan and that's because in the first two weeks there is no qiyamun layl except for what people do personally and privately, there is no Qiyam al-Layl in the Masjid. And also, if we don't use those two weeks, we will also again have a problem with finishing the module on time and lots of people taking annual leave. However, we won't have any classes in the last two weeks of Ramadan because clearly that's a time when a lot of people are praying Qiyam al-Layl and it's extremely difficult then to ask you to stay up all night and then come for Fajr and stay up all day as well. But I think that bearing in mind the classes on a Friday, it's quite doable in the first two weeks of Ramadan, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, but further announcements will be made on that. That's the working plan at the moment, subject to change, of course. But at the moment, the working plan is that we will start immediately from next week. And we will have probably the first, and it, it might end up being three lessons or two lessons, but it's two weeks depending on when Ramadan starts in Ramadan and, and the topic will begin with Aqeedah again because I believe that personally every student should be an expert in Aqeedah you can't afford to be jahil or ignorant on the topic of Aqeedah at all it doesn't matter if your specialization is tafsir or calligraphy and if you're, if you're specialized in, in calligraphy you need to be an expert in Aqeedah and if, even if the only thing you do is just write out Arabic letters, you know, like this is an, a fundamental, essential part of every Muslim. Uh, and so we're going to give it like almost every module has an Aqeedah module in it. Uh, and then inshallah ta'ala we'll move on to, uh, as we progress through the course, to usul al-fiqh, inshallah ta'ala and qawaid al-fiqhiyya. So that's coming up. Uh, the exam, as we said, will be held next week for this this final exam and you'll receive your results for your previous exam before that time because generally we commit to giving you uh, we commit to giving you your results prior to sitting the the next exam inshallah there'll also be some uh, an assignment some sort of assignment or practical task to do it will probably differ somewhat from the last one that you were given because we will not give you the same thing every time, something a little bit different, inshallah. And that will be announced at the beginning of module two, inshallah ta'ala. So today, we're going to be doing both Tafsir al-Sa'di and Tafsir ibn Kathir. And we're going to be looking at Surah Al-Ma'idah. And uh, Surah Al-Ma'idah was the Surah that we were assigned for tafsir in the Jamia Islamiyah, bearing in mind that in the Jamia Islamiyah, in Islamic University of Medina, if you do not go to the faculty of Quran, then the tafsir that you do is limited. 
except what you do privately. Privately, you could finish the whole Quran, but in terms of the university syllabus, if you don't finish, if you don't go to the faculty of Quran, then your tafsir is limited to certain, uh, certain surahs. And uh, the surah that we were, we were given different parts. I mean, I think we were given Surah Al-Nisa and Surah Al-Ma'idah. But Surah Al-Ma'idah presents an, a really different uh, uh, topic and a different theme to what we had done uh, previously from Surah Al-Fatiha. And that's because it is Madaniyyah. It was revealed during the time that the Prophet ﷺ was living in Medina. And that means that the general differences you can see, the ayat are much longer, the ayat in the surah Makkiyah are much shorter. So the Makkan surahs, the ayahs are shorter. In the Makkan surahs, there is almost no halal and haram. Not no halal and haram, but almost no halal and haram. The vast majority of the content, a 95% plus of the surahs that are Makkiyah, is Tawheed and Aqeedah and the basics of Iman. And we know that the Prophet ﷺ for somewhere in the region of 10 years from the beginning of his prophethood taught nothing but Aqeedah, taught nothing but Tawheed and Iman. And then the Salah was uh, revealed and so on. And he towards the latter part of Makkah. And during his stay in Makkah, nothing other than the Salah, in the, after the Salah, nothing other than the Salah was revealed from the major actions of Islam. All of the major shara'i of Islam, the zakah and the hajj and all of the, uh, yani, the rest, they were revealed while the Prophet ﷺ was in Medina. So what you see about the Madani surahs is that they have long ayat, they are full of ahkam, halal and haram and fiqh, what you're allowed to do and not allowed to do and things to do with marriage and things to do with covering and things to do with zakah, laws and legislation. And of course, they still contain aqidah, they still contain tawheed. But now the focus has changed. It's that, that the Muslims have developed that, that iman and that belief in Allah, and now they're ready to accept the halal and the haram. And this is an excellent or has an excellent lesson in it for us ourselves in da'wah. And that is not that we ignore the halal and the haram. But that for a person to be able to embrace the halal and the haram, they have to have that basic belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first. And that's why generally if you see somebody, you see, see someone who's not practicing at all and they're struggling, they're not praying, and uh, they're not fasting, they're not making the hajj. And a person in this situation, if they're doing that, then what do we begin with? The first thing we need to do is to make sure there is an attachment in their heart to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
And once we have that attachment, they will be willing and ready to embrace those commands. Now, we still tell them to pray from the first minute. We still tell them the first time someone comes to you and says, I'm not praying, you don't say, okay, keep not praying for a week while I teach you to hate. We tell them to pray right away. But we recognize that that command will somewhat fall upon deaf ears unless it is accompanied by getting them to know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and making them want to worship Allah based on the knowledge that they have of Him. And so the methodology is still valid even though we don't have the option in our time of tadarruj. We don't have the option of saying to somebody, drink a little bit of alcohol this week and a little bit less next week and then don't drink alcohol at all in the third week. We don't have any the option to do that. But we still have the option to follow the general methodology of giving that focus upon aqidah and tawheed and small ayat, simple messages about belief in Allah and belief in al-yawm al-akhir and then building people up to the level where they can understand the more complex rules and regulations. And that's why when a lady comes to you and says, I don't, I struggle with wearing hijab or I, I don't see the benefit in wearing hijab or I find hijab to be a struggle. You have to recognize the reason she says that is because of a weakness of tawheed. Not a weakness of understanding the issue of the hijab. You can explain the hijab to a hundred times, she will not get it. Until that tawheed is there. That concept that I'm willing to sacrifice for Allah, that Allah knows best what is best for me. So we tell her and we give her the reasons to wear the hijab and so on. But we also recognize that the biggest sickness in there is a sickness related to a tawheed. And so when we correct that, first of all, that gives then a chance for people to be more receptive to the bigger and more complicated rulings that exist uh, in Islam. So once again, we're going to begin with uh, Tafsir al-Sa'di and we probably will only cover two or three ayat, maybe not even that, because the ayat in Surah Al-Ma'idah are long. But I want you to recognize again the contrast in what's available to you. A lot of people said we didn't get Tafsir ibn Kathir. Maybe that's my explanation. Maybe it wasn't slow enough. Uh, but also you'll see that there's a difference. When you want a general idea of what the surah means, dip into a small tafsir. Read the, the meaning of the surah in, in, in the Muhsin Khan translation of the Qur'an. Go to tafsir al-Sa'di. Go to one of the, the smaller books of tafsir. You'll get a good idea of what the ayah means. But if you really want the detail and you want to know more about differences of opinion and more about rulings and more about the reason it was revealed and the different ways of recitation, you're not going to find that in a summarized book of tafsir. So you're going to go to something like Ibn Kathir, where it is partially summarized. Anywhere Ibn Kathir is partially summarized, meaning that Ibn Kathir has not given you the full tafsir, which you might find in a tabari or something like that but he's given you a lot of the tafsir uh, and again if you read a summary of Ibn Kathir then you're going to read like you're going to get in the summary of Ibn Kathir even more uh, you know see it becomes even shorter so you have even more sort of it's even easier to approach a summary of Ibn Kathir than it is to approach the full the full version so tafsir uh, of Surah Al-Ma'idah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
said after Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, Ya ayyuhaladina amanu awfu bil ukut. Wahillat lakum bahimatul an ami illa ma yutla alaykum, wayra muhillis saidi, wayra muhillis saidi wa antum hurum, inna allaha yahkumu ma yurid. Let's first of all just dip briefly, if I can from here, into the, the translation that is given to us by Muhsin Khan. Because this at least will give us an opportunity to understand the basic uh, understanding of the ayah. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أَوْفُوا بِالْعُقُودِ أُحِلَّتْ لَكُمْ بَهِيمَةُ الْأَنْعَامِ إِلَّا مَا يُتْلَى عَلَيْكُمْ غَيْرُ مُحِلَّ الصَّيْدِ وَأَنْتُمْ حُرُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَحْكُمُ مَا يُرِيدُ And we switch it to Muhsin Khan and see what it says. Okay. O you who believe. يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا O you who believe. Fulfill your obligations. Lawful to you. In food are all the beasts of cattle except that which will be announced to you and gain being unlawful when you assume ihram for Hajj or Umrah indeed Allah commands that which he wills so straight away you see a big difference between the Makki and the Madani between short simple and between now more complicated there is a famous narration regarding this ayah in Surah Al-Ma'idah that there was a particular individual who claimed to be able to produce something like the Qur'an and he came to be able to produce a surah like the Qur'an so he took this challenge and he went to his home and he started to produce something that he could present to the people and say this is the same as the Qur'an and I am able to make something like the Qur'an so he said, I opened the Mus'haf for inspiration of where to start. And he opened it upon Surah Al-Ma'idah, the first ayah in Surah Al-Ma'idah. And before he reached the end of the ayah, he realized it was impossible to produce anything like this Qur'an. To bring anything like this Qur'an forward. Because in this ayah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala covers the entire religion of Islam in an ayah. In fact, in a single statement, Ya The entire religion of Islam can be summarized by this. Then Allah made some things halal, and He made some things haram, and He made some exceptions. Then He informed about Himself and what He does and His names and attributes and characteristics, and that is in a single ayah. So how about trying to produce a surah like this? It's not possible. So he came back and he announced to the people that he was unable to produce something like the Qur'an. Because of this first ayah that he read from Surah Al-Ma'idah. 